Hey, hey, everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Great, great set of callers tonight. The first caller wanted to know, how can we oppose the growing corruption and misrepresentation of data and conclusions, the unreproducibility of particular experiments in government science and in academic science? Great question. We had a great conversation about that. The second caller wanted to know, how could health insurance really work? What is the mechanics behind it? Isn't it going to fail? Isn't it going to screw people over? And we talked about that. And a woman called in who thought that a big problem in the world was female vanity. I guess uh, waving a red flag in front of the bull of my speechifying. And we had a great conversation about that too. And the fourth caller wanted to talk about mysticism. And so I asked to define mysticism. And then I hung onto my scalp as we went on a pretty wild ride through some pretty phantasmagorical language. The fifth caller was a lady who had some significant objections initially to my 15 reasons why not to date a single mother. She got really upset about it. Then she felt better about it. Then she called in about it. And it was an even wilder ride than the mystic was. And the sixth caller was a Mexican who was raised illegally in America. He was uh, brought over and uh, raised illegally in America. And he decided to return back to Mexico to live out his life because he didn't feel like he could have much opportunity as an illegal in America. And he really feels between a rock and a hard place, between sixes and sevens, as we used to say when I was a kid. Who am I? What is my culture? What is my identity? And we had a great conversation about immigration and identity and what it means to fit in somewhere. And it was a great, great conversation and quite relevant to this highly transient world that we live in at the moment. So I hope you enjoy the show. I know I did. It was great, great stuff. Please, please drop by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. All right. Well, up first today, we have James. James wrote in and said, how can we stop corruption in academia, especially in science, and bring to light the rampant corruption amongst drug-developing scientists that cost the taxpayers millions? That's from James. Oh, hey, James. How are you doing tonight? Hello. Good evening. I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Do you, uh, do you have anything personal you would like to share with us? Any experiences with this kind of stuff? Sure. So imagine you're a professor. Ah! You're slimy. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you have to you have to warn me of these things, man. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Don't worry. So 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 you're a professor, right? You get you're sleazy. You get you get six million dollars in grant funding. But the thing is from the government, but the thing is is that these grants are well-regulated in a way, but also very poorly regulated in another way. So, for example, this money that you get, they tell you this can only go to two things. One, your scientist salary in your lab, and two, to instrumentation. So you have to prove that that money that you use for that. Okay, but now this is what you do because you're a scumbag. Well, obviously not you. You know what I mean, right? You hire a postdoc, and you say, I'm going to raise your salary and so, wow, great. I get to do science and big university. This guy has lots of money and he's going to pay me more than the other postdocs. Okay. You as a professor buy a house 
or an apartment that's close to the university. And of course, you you can charge as much as you want because people are willing to pay for it. And then you say, okay, to your to your postdoc that you're paying lots of money, you say, oh, by the way, I can give you housing too. And I charge you and you charge them a lot of money, but the postdoc doesn't really know this because you're paying him a lot of money anyway that's coming from the grant. So, and these people, so, 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 so the grant money that the government is giving you or other agencies are giving you to try and fund cancer, you're laundering to put it in your pocket by giving housing to this postdoc. Or, or, or another option, say you also want to make more money, L essentially launder the money that taxpayers are giving you to fund science because, you know, and, 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 and kind hearted people that are donating for cancer research. They say, oh, you know, um, I know someone personally who struggled with cancer, um, you know, who has died or, or survived, whatever. So they give from the heart, right? So they give, they give to you a sleazy professor and then you take that money and you say, okay, I'm going to open up a company to further launder that money so I can basically make myself rich. Uh, what I just described to you, okay, now back to real life. Now back, I'm talking to Stefan now, not the sleazy professor. What I just described is something I, I have um, experienced firsthand. I'm, I'm, I mean, like, I, I, I've seen it happen uh, from people who are getting, uh, you know, it's no exaggeration, millions of dollars in funding from the state to do cancer research. Um, and, you know, to me... I went into science, perhaps it's a bit naive, uh, but I, I went into science thinking, oh, I want to help humanity. You know, I want to, I have, I have specific skill sets that I want to use for the betterment of um, other people's lives. And you, and I go into it all, all, all gung-ho to make the world a better place, right? Yeah. Uh, and then reality smacks you off the side of the head and it's all... Uh, it's it's traumatic um, to say the least, and it's also a little bit, and by a little bit I mean quite a bit, infuriating uh, to see to see how 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 this is abused, and you know so that's that's the first thing, and then you know I I decided to to look more into it um, to see if oh, okay well maybe this is an isolated incident maybe this is just you know, my little niche of the world. Uh, there, there are, there are, so, so essentially what happened, but there's a, lots of people that are coming out saying people are wasting taxpayer money. <laughs> um, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> In, 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 in the particular way. So they say, okay, I believe, so now... I believe that study can be reproduced with 100% accuracy, but go on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so the problem is that, so a biologist runs a screen saying, I want to kill leukemia cells, right? Or whatever cancer, whatever disease you want, right? You do a massive high throughput screen, which by the way, is not cheap. Um, you, you get say 15 compounds, right? That, that, that are uh, positive hits, right? Well, and sorry, just, just to point out, um, we, we can switch it to lymphoma cells since that's going to get my my ire up since that's what I had. The, the, it's actually very easy to kill cancer cells. You, you can actually do it with a machine gun. You can do it with a bunker buster. <laughs> you can do it with flamethrowers. You can do it yeah. if they die of boredom. Um, 
the, the, the point is not just to kill the cancer cells, but keep the other cells alive. That's, you know, the pretty, pretty, it's a pretty targeted airstrike that you need to, to get going on it. So yeah, that's, that's the key. Go on. Definitely. No, definitely. Thanks for bringing that up. And so, so say you, you want to kill uh, lymphoma cells and then you say you get 15 compounds, right? That come out and then, and then. Because okay, and then, and then and then you go with that money to funding agencies. I think of which I saw a statistic that upwards of eighty percent or eighty-five percent of um, academic labs are funded by the government. And then you say, "Oh, you know, uh, look at these results. I have this machine gun that kills cancer." And they're like, "Oh, that's great. You're going to be the new, the next cancer, or you're, you're going to have the cure for cancer." And look at us; we're funding the cure for cancer. Aren't we so amazing? But the trouble is that if you go and talk to, because you're a biologist, or you, I keep saying you, but you know what I mean. If this, in this yeah, scenario. that's fine. Sure. Um, the thing is, is uh, the, when a chemist looks at a, at a particular structure, a particular motif or arrangement of atoms, you can say, ha, huh, that looks a lot like bleach. Say, for example, the active ingredient in bleach or, or the equivalent of that, that, that particular rearrangement is a is a time bomb and it's not specific to what you think it's specific to it's a machine gun it's a drone strike right no not not following at all um can you try again so there there are particular uh, uh there are particular arrangements of atoms just just particular sequence of of connectivities that a chemist knows this reacts with everything right and that comes out of your of the biologist's high throughput screen. So a good chemist sees that and says, "Well, that's that's useless because obviously it's going to kill your cancer." Um, but here's the thing. I think I think Biologi- we need. Sorry, man. I think we need to get out of the. Uh, uh, I think we need to get a little bit out of the details. Um, sure. Sorry. Fascinating well, for you. Vaguely interesting to me. But I'm not okay. sure about okay. everyone else. So fair enough, fair I, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that here's the challenge, right? And and tell me if I've gone astray. Sure. There is um, a bell curve on outputs, even in randomized things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's you know a blind guy is going to sink a basket once in a while. It's just you know wh- where is the bell curve in terms of success and failure? And so yep. it's very easy to say you're successful if you have a successful trial. The question is reproducibility, right? Reproducibility is, I mean, certainly in, it's in science too, but in biology, it's kind of the gold standard. And sure. uh, studies have shown that um, articles published in scientific journals, um, like the biotech cam- company Amgen, they, they mm-hmm. put a team of about 100 scientists. They were trying to reproduce the findings of 53 big landmark articles in cancer research. And this is reputable labs, top journals, and so on. And uh, of the 53 studies that they attempted to reproduce, they could reproduce uh, uh, only six, which is about well, a little over 10%. Sure. And at Bayer, right, a pharmaceutical company, they looked yep. at 67 target validation projects in oncology, women's health, cardiovascular medicine, and the published results were reproduced in only 14 out of 67 projects, which is about... Uh, 21%, and um, that's terrible, <laughs> right? That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Uh, in, in psych research, uh, we're, we're chugging at about a third of major studies that can be 
uh, reproduced. And, um, and so, you know, when people say to me, well, the peer review system is the gold standard of scientific research, it's like, it's not. It's really, really not. Yeah, the gold garbage. standard. <laughs> it's not. It's like saying the the FDA is the gold standard of consumer safety. No, the FDA costs many more lives than it saves because it prevents life saving medicines from getting to uh, the market. And the, the the idea that you can find some substitute for voluntary interaction. Uh, the what I want is stuff that I'm willing to pay for that isn't going to kill me. That, that's what I want. And I want companies who can't produce that to go the hell out of business. And I want people who can produce that to get my money. Just shut up, give me a cure, take my money. There's no substitute for the market. There's no substitute for, you know, if, if somebody releases something that, that kills people, then, of course, you know, criminal, civil actions against them and so on. Uh, so th- there's no substitute. And people imagine that there's some substitute for it. Well, government funding will fill in the gaps of what's missing. No, no, it won't. No, it won't. Government funding, in terms of this stuff, cures. I mean, you're talking life and death here. This isn't some abstract superstring quantum mechanics theory. I mean, this is life and death. People choking up their lungs on their deathbed and dying like dogs. There's no substitute for voluntarism. There's no substitute for the free market. Because what happens is it, it, it harms human beings in two main ways. One is that it promotes cures or, or studies which, which, which don't work. And so people think there's a solution when there isn't. That's very bad. But secondly, it's the opportunity cost. It's what's not developed because there are all these people, you know, talented, intelligent people who may blah, 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 have the very best of intentions. I'm sort of getting tired of using that phrase, but, you know, I guess it bears repeating at least once in this damn show. But... Um, they're not actually working on stuff that would work. I mean, it's like the, 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 you know, you've got some engineer under Stalin out there building a bridge to nowhere in the middle of Siberia. Well, okay, he's wasting resources. He's wasting his life. He's consuming stuff for nothing. But also there was another bridge that he could have made that people would have used that he didn't make. The opportunity costs of getting people sucked into this useless chase approval, peer review, chase the government grant application process, uh, and, and it can be used politically, right? Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, is a, a very famous uh, professor uh, at UFC, he's been on the show, and um, since he became more controversial, well, wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, his funding request has been denied for the first time in his career. Ooh, what a shocking, shocking turn of events. Unpopular, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just so sorry we don't seem to. We've checked under the couch cushions. We've taken back all of our pop bottles, but I'm sorry, Mr. Unpopular Person, Mr. Rock the Boat Person, Mr. Hey, if you like studying race and IQ, sorry, no money for you, no soup for you. And it's very political. It's very corrupt. And the amount of social resources that it consumes and the amount of social progress it prevents is literally incalculable. Yeah, definitely. And it's so true. And you know, the way that it's, that it's set up right now is, is it, um, it promotes liars. And by that, I mean, you're a biologist, you get these screens, you say, cool, these screens kill cancer, you find a chemist who says, you know what, whatever, I I want, I want to get a bunch of money too, even though they know that it's all, it's all garbage, it's all BS, but who cares, because we're getting more money. And by the time that I'll do good later. 
You know, I, just, yeah. I need this now to get to the next step in my career. But trust me, when I get over that hump, when I get that lab, when I get that endowment, when I get that tenure, I'm going to do so much good, your head will spin. Yeah. And, and by then, you have spent literally millions and millions of dollars that could have been spent elsewhere. And you're compromised in many ways, right? You're, you're, you're literally compromised. You've compromised yourself. And also, um, given the amount of corruption that's going on in the scientific community, other people know your secrets, right? That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, actually, I was talking to Mike earlier. I said, you know, it took me a while to come on the show and talk about this publicly because it's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm very glad it's anonymous, right? But it needs to be, it needs to be said. And the reason why I'm glad it's anonymous is because the peer, my peers don't look so kindly on the snitch. You know, what's that saying? Snitches get stitches. And often but in this end case, up in ditches. Yes, it's true. That's, I like that. It's like, in this case, it's, you know, snitches will never get hired in any lab ever. Because, I mean, unless it's a honest, genuinely honest scientist. And so, you know, um, it's uh, a lot more common than I initially wanted to admit. It's a lot more common even than I could imagine. I mean, I know it sounds cheesy to say that, but it's like you're, you're, it's a little, it's paralyzing, right? To look at this all massive amounts of, um, yeah, corruption. And, and once, once you get a certain amount of corruption in a field, then the field itself is, is corrupt. It becomes a polysyllabic kleptocracy of falsehood manipulation and delusion. Because what happens is, if you get a corrupt system in a corrupt environment, and I view academia in general, there are specific exceptions, but I view academia in general as extraordinarily corrupt and a betrayal of the essential task of the most intelligent to protect to protect the majority of humanity. You know, those of us blessed with good genes, good brains, good communication skills, reasonable health, a decent amount of courage, those of us who are blessed, and I mean that literally, I, I didn't earn my brain, we have an obligation to defend, to protect and defend those with less verbal acuity, those with less mental ability, those with less nimble, unearned neural connections, right? And, and that's a fundamental responsibility. I take that extraordinarily seriously, and I always have. I can't even tell you the number of times that I have received a message something like the following. You put into words, Steph, that which I have always felt but could not articulate. You express the hidden passion and truth within me that I cannot cough up into verbal form. And my capacity to, uh, to crystallize and to express what people inchoately feel, very passionate about this sense of unease, this sense of frustration, this sense of anger, this sense of hopelessness, this sense of despair, to articulate the why, to put forward the cause, the effect, and the cure, is a staggering responsibility. Now, I've always tried to use that Ability, the abilities that I have in the most responsible fashion, right, to, to those, those to whom much is given, much is required. And with great power comes great responsibility. And I have 
And this is not just me. I'm speaking personally, right? There's many, many people out there. But if you're smart, you get it's not for you. It's not just for you. You know, like sex. It's not just for you. It's also for making babies and for bonding with a life partner and for cementing the twist ties of love. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's not, every, it's not just for you. It's not just for you. And we've got this thing where all my abilities are mine. And this, to some degree, comes out of this environmental shit, right? This idea that, well, you know, everything's environmental and free will is infinite. And therefore, everything that I have, I have just earned myself. And remember, this is way back when, a couple of years ago, Obama's like, you didn't build that. Well, okay, economically speaking, I understand that that's true. But as far as I didn't build me, you didn't build you. If we have abilities, for God's sakes, let's use them in the service of the species. Now, this is best served in the free market, but in the intellectual world, there's not as much of a free market as there should be. In fact, until the advent of the internet, there was very little market for intellectuals outside of academia, which wasn't heavily gatekeepered, right? So, I mean, you, you, you could be a writer and you could pen books on political theory or analysis of philosophy and so on, but it was really hard to find people open-minded and committed and, and intelligent enough, if you were really smart, to, to understand your work and to publish you. And so what frustrates me is in the realm of ideas, in the realm of philosophy, if you're smart, if you're smart, you didn't build that. You understand? You did not build that. You don't owe society something because it educated you. No, society didn't educate you. Society attempted to indoctrinate you. It, it held you down while someone came up with a greased pole of state-serving cliches and attempted to lever you in two. And if you were lucky to escape that, good on you. You didn't build your brain. And to some degree, you owe common humanity the kindness. It's not like it's criminal to not do it. Like it's not criminal to not give someone the Heimlich maneuver if you're really enjoying your risotto, but you're kind of a dick and a half if you don't. But your brain, which you did not earn, should be used in the service of humanity. And people who flee to academia and just use their brains to advance their own careers and get their own money and get their own spheres of power are hollowed out from the inside as the state dollars are like termites to a wooden man. They crawl in through a hole in the heart and expand to eat the entire insides. And you are left as the hollow man, the stuffed men had pieces filled with straw, alas. And this aspect where people take the money of taxpayers without working night and day, moving heaven and earth itself to cough back a cure to humanity, you're taking money by force, assholes. Give us back a cure. I took money from taxpayers to pursue my education. Trust me, it's I've been an entrepreneur. They got their money's worth in terms of tax paybacks and the jobs that I generated and the income that I generated as an entrepreneur. But I have always felt an obligation, and I've repeated it many times. Well, the people in the labs, the people who are working to keep body and soul together for the afflicted and the diseased, the struck down by bad habits or bad luck. Well, you owe society back. It's not about you. It's not about your career. It's not about your advancement. It's not about how many employees you have. It's not about how complicated your business card turns out to be. It's not about how prestigious your publications are. It's not about any of that. 
But this idea of public service, the idea of serving the community with your gifts. If you're the tallest guy in the tribe, get some fruit that the others can't reach and share it a bit. You didn't earn being tall, you're just lucky. Share it a little. I'm not saying the government should force you to do nothing like that. But the sense of obligation, of, of civic duty, of duty to your tribe. I mean, if you're, let me tell you this, I'll tell you this straight, people. If you're in academia, like if you're in psychology, if you're in history, if you're in sociology, if you're in the soft arts, if you're in the soft sciences, if you're in biology, criminology, you know what you need to be talking about? Sorry, it's a fact. You need to be talking about race and IQ. That is the big, big, biggest question at the moment. In We're making all these decisions like everyone's equal and environment will shape everyone no matter what. And the science does not bear it out. And this is the number one issue you should be thinking and talking and writing about. You know, if you have a bodyguard, right? If you have a bodyguard, you mostly pay him to stand around. You're wading through your crowds. You're, you're really, really important. You're some Jenna girl about to make a disastrous Pepsi ad. You're, you're, you're just a big deal. And you never know. People get stalkers, crazy people, Jodie Foster-obsessed fans, whatever. Now, one day out of five years, actually one minute out of one day out of five years, you really, really need that bodyguard. That's really when you need him. You, you pay him for the time for that moment, right? He's got to be around to be aware of that moment when some crazy fan comes lunging through the crowd with a knife. Boom! Take him down. Sit on his back, elbow his neck. Take him down. That's the whole reason you're being paid, you understand? For that one moment. The rest of it, just you're just walking around with a famous person. Do do do. I like the flashbulbs. Cameras are cool. Look at all the hungry people looking to drink my fame. Like baby birds in a nest. I'm gonna cough up some worms. You're being paid all this time. You're taking in, I don't know, five years of really competent uh, bodyguard. What are you, hundred thousand a year? You're raking in half a million dollars. What for? What for? One split second. Like a security guard. Chatting with David Thewlis, right? Like a security guard. You're there all night, all day, all night in an empty factory. Just for that one time, someone breaks a window and comes in. Boom. There you go. That's what, with academics, society, intelligent people, you understand? Society has shoveled. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of billions of billions of dollars at these people. And they've had a pretty sweet life. You've had a pretty sweet life, right? Four months off in the summer. You know, teach a couple of classes, yell at a few TAs, have them do your work. Write a couple of papers, get them published because you know the people. And you know, pick up your 160000 a year. Lots of benefits. You could retire early or you can keep working if you want. It's a pretty, all these people looking up to you. It's true you can't bang the co-eds like you used to, but, you know, <laughs> society moves forward. And you're like the bodyguard. Most of the time, you're not busy. You're scanning the crowd and all that, but you're not in danger. You're not busy. But there are times when the intellectuals, like 
the oft-spoken-of ancient heroes who are supposed to come back to life when the tribe is the most threatened. Now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time. The crazed fan is lunging through the crowd, and now it's time to shake off your torpor and get something done. Leap into action. Now is the time for which you and your forefathers have been paid, for which you've had to do sweet F all. Now is the time. Get up. Talk about inbreeding. Talk about ethnicity and IQ. Talk about nationality and IQ. Talk about genetics. Talk about the limits of environmentalism. Talk about the limits of culture. Talk about the dysgenic effects of the welfare state. Do your job. The job you have been paid for. The job you have received hundreds of billions of dollars collectively over the last hundred years. Now is the time. Crazed fan coming through the crowd. Gonna gash the throat of Western civilization. Stand up for God's sakes. Do your job. And they won't. And they're not. So it falls to people like me. I get the goo, the ghastliness, and the glory. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I mean, it's so perfect. You know, and I was going to say, I have heard this guy who researches a very particular cancer. Um, well, by, like, obviously, I don't want to give it away, right? But he, I, we had a group meeting. And he, after getting millions and millions of dollars from people who are giving with their heart and everything that they have. And this fucker, sorry, again, no, and this ahead. guy. No, this is the least around. offensive thing about what we're talking about. Yeah, this guy sits around with us in his office and he says, our job, this is a direct quotation, our job is not to cure cancer or Alzheimer's. Our job is to make sure you get a good job leaving this lab. Well, that's honest. Does he say it? Well, well, I mean, yeah, but does he say that to the people he's getting money from when he goes to the this agency and that agency? No, of course not. And you know why he wants us to go to leave and go and get the jobs? Because it looks good for him. And you know what, I, what else I've found too? This guy, the same professor, the sleazy guy that I'm telling you about, he has then realized that a bunch of his students have been lying, but he still gives them really solid um, references. Yeah, he doesn't so want to look like he hired liars, right? Exactly. And then, you know what? He, he actually endorses these people to become professors. And so some of his students who are liars are now professors. And, and they're getting uh, lots of money in, in, in taxpayer funding. And, and then the cycle perpetuates itself. And you know what? It's exactly what you're saying. These people have to stand up and they're not. And they're stabbing us in the back and they're stealing from the taxpayer. And they're just laughing at how stupid we are and how and this is the most infuriating aspect of it they're giving they're taking money from people whose kid has died from cancer whose mom is in the hospital dying with cancer whose grandfather has alzheimer's and he's deteriorating in his bed and these people see their family and they're like what can i do to save this or, or to, to help prevent this in the future oh well there's this guy that i know you know, that's, that's advertised. That's, oh, the big professor at X university here, take some money because hopefully one day this won't happen to somebody else's child. Someday this won't happen to somebody else's mom. Someday this won't happen to somebody else's grandfather. And they, and these professors, these, these academics, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. They're like, give me my money. Give me my tenure. F you, F your child, F your mom, F your grandmother. I could care less. Give me my tenure and I'm good to go. And it's so, uh, it's so, so, so slimy and sleazy. And it just makes me want to burn every university to the ground, you know? <laughs> well, and of course, what happens if people say, well, 
I think uh, this is pretty corrupt. Uh, not a lot of not a lot of success going on here. You know, if, if only 10% of your studies can be reproduced, the whole thing's a Ponzi scheme to House of Cards, right? So we got to cut your funding. And then do you know what they do? They, they drag out from their bed the children dying of XYZ illness, and they say, but look at poor Jimmy's eyes. He's dying, and we're his only hope. Are you going to put him into his grave? Are you? They, they literally use the sick and the dying as human shields to keep the money train rolling in. Horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah, and, you know, it, it leaves me to say, like, you know, to the people that I that I see around, I'm like, don't ever give money to any sort of this cancer research or that cancer research because the last thing they're doing is cancer research on a, you know, or whatever other disease. You have to be really, really, really careful. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, debilitating. And going back to the whole thing that you were saying about Jordan Peterson, you propose an idea that goes against what – mainstream academia which is essentially now synonymous with cultural marxism and just straight up marxism and they say oh no that's bad i mean i i know that uh, you mentioned that you're in canada right and i looked up you know i guess i facetiously asked the question i know that canada has the residential schools truth and reconciliation sessions sure right so one of the other things that i was thinking about in you know in with respect to the corruption of science right is that and I'm, I'm, I've heard you mention it uh, on your show as well with Ritalin and Dexedrine, the ADHD medication that they're giving young children that they've been giving out for what quarter of a century ish um, without solid evidence to, to know that it's legit for lack of a better word, you know? Uh, and so are these, are, 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 are they ever going to sit them down and be like, we need to have a truth and reconciliation session with the young boys that were drugged and are still being drugged? No, of course not, because they don't give a shit, <laughs> because it, it keeps the money train going. You know, it keeps their nice, cushy, what's it called? The ivory tower uh, thing going. And they the, gravy train, the gravy train. The gravy train. Thank you. The gravy train. And they look down on us plebs and they don't care yeah no and, and you know there's this old joke i think it was in galaxy quest probably before then as well but there's this old joke you don't want to be the red-shirted security officer in star wars it's star trek sorry in star trek right because you beam down and because you're not part of the regular cast and you have a different colored shirt you're toast whatever <laughs> right. penis in lash tentacles is going to come out slither past kirk's butt and take down a security officer but you're going to be first First in that line. And the same thing is true. Like now there's all these rumors of increased engagements in the Middle East. And and you know how you know that's coming? Because you're seeing bodies on the news. Women and children are dead. And you're seeing that in Syria. And you're seeing that on the news. And what that means is that they're ramping up for a war. They're ramping up for a war. I hope to God not. I hope that they don't. I hope that they don't. But but that's it. It's like, oh no. I've seen a dead child in a foreign country. That means war, baby, because they just use this stuff. They use our sympathies. They use our sympathies for uh, these people, right? Like that migrant boy who drowned in the surf. Turned out his dad had just overloaded a boat and was trying to get to Canada for dental care. Wasn't fleeing anything in particular. But they just, oh, no, there's a dead child. That means there's going to be a whole lot more dead people because the moment you see a body in a foreign country, well, a foreigner's body, body in a foreign country, 
your emotions are being stoked up. And what they know is that you care. They don't care. But they know that you care. And they use that to hurt you. To have feelings in a world of cold-hearted manipulators is to have a giant fish hook in your cheek that anyone can yank on at will. And the cessation of sympathy is one of the elemental disciplines that moralists need to develop. Because we've got this idea, right? This idea, and this is to do with all of this academic funding. We've got this idea that morality is kindness. Morality is niceness. Morality is sympathy and and, and empathy and hugs. And no, 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 no. That's not what morality is at all. And I remember this as people got really surprised when I was pretty firm and fair with this fellow Fritz who called in to indicate that uh, he was going to tell me how to to change people's minds. And uh, because he had some chats privately. Right. I think I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, So people were, oh, it's so mean. It's like, no, this is that morality is not niceness. Morality is rarely nice. Morality rarely feels good. This is hedonism. If it feels good, do it. Do what thou wilt, thou though not harm others. And it's a complete misapprehension. When I grew up, morality was not nice at all. It wasn't kind. It wasn't, you know, morality was uh, very strict. And morality was follow these rules or go to hell. Not like go to hell, but go to hell. And we've got this sort of weird idea. Morality is, is, is hugs and rainbows and... Welcome, migrants. <laughs> morality is, is... No, morality, virtue, is a tough, gnarly old son of a bitch who's got a big sword and a big shield and chewing tobacco in his cheek. Morality will mess you up. Morality will throw you upside down. Morality will rip out your heart and replace it with a machine of truth. Morality is not about being nice. Now, evil people want you to think that morality is being ab- about, it's about being nice. Why? Because if evil people can get you to believe that morality is about being nice, well, first of all, you're going to become very non-confrontational. Isn't that convenient for evil people? Well, I I guess I could approach Sauron with a hug. Maybe he'll like that. (laughs) Right? But if, if they can get you to believe that morality is about being nice and considerate and thoughtful and sincere and warm hearted and sympathetic and empathetic and lovely. If they can believe If you can get you to believe that morality is standing like a trembling little girl holding a doll in the shadow of a giant dragon, mindlessly hugging it right before she gets eaten, well, guess what? You are disarmed and evil wins. If they can get you to believe. And of course, we're thirsty to believe that evil can be beaten with niceness. That that, that morality is about being nice. Because we prefer, those of us who are nice, those of us who have, we prefer to be nice than to be confrontation, than to be difficult, than to upset people, than to alarm people, than to, I don't know, interfere with the plans of evil, right? Evil doesn't stop if you're nice. Otherwise, we wouldn't have judges. We'd have safe spaces, right? We wouldn't have prisons. We'd have hug rooms. What a drudge, uh, Matt Drudge, today on Twitter. Winners have few friends. Losers get hugs. Yeah, or as Mike said, uh, just about anyone can pity you, but uh, 
jealousy. Well, that has to be earned, right? So we are told, and of course, when women get a lot of political power and cultural influence and, and money influence, and women have staggering amounts of money influence in society because they're like more than 90% of household purchases are run by women and all that. So when women start to get a lot of influence and power in society, you get this shift. Morality is no longer tough. Morality is no longer strong. No, no, morality is no longer a hard line of defense in society. And an ostracism butt slap to deviance from reasonable social norms. Now it just becomes about being nice. Being nice. Who the, f who the fuck cares about being nice? In terms of morality. I mean, I'm nice to my family. I'm nice to my friends. And, you know, I'm nice on this show quite, quite often. But who cares about it as far as niceness? What, what does it get you? Well, it gets yeah, you exploited. I, and, and the idea that, like, once you understand that evil people run the world, it becomes a whole lot simpler. I just, this is the, that's the foundation. That's, that's the gravity well you need to organize your physics around. Evil people run the world. Evil people uh, trained you. Evil people indoctrinated you. Evil people run the education system. They run the media. They run the uh, entertainment system. They run, they just, they run everything. Evil, malevolent, destructive people. Then it's so much easier. Because then, if you understand that everything you've learned about morality serves the interests of evil people, it becomes a lot easier. Everything that you've learned about being good was taught to you by evil people so that you'll be easier to manipulate and won't interfere with their plans. Of course. Of course. Like in the same way that farmers take the, you know, sheep in, in the wild are assholes. Asshole sheep on a cliff. That is a dangerous place to be. Goats! My God, Goats! Man, don't bend over. You're going to have a prison shank experience in your kidneys or other places. <laughs> if you bend over near a wild goat, they're assholes and a half. You know, dogs are neotenized wolves, right? They're wolves that retain the aspects of puppiness all the way through adulthood. I'm going to lick and play with you, right? Whereas wolves are like, hey, <laughs> all they see is a big rotating rotisserie with your head on it, right? <laughs> and... So the farmer, of course, has domesticated the animals by repeatedly breeding the nicest animals, the calmest animals, the most friendly animals. And so they've domesticated. And your ethics have been domesticated in the same way. You used to have tough ethics, right? The deus vult kind of ethics, uh, the, the staunchly defend your civilization kind of ethics. Now you have, you know, bullshit, syrupy, big hug shit, right? We can fight evil with hashtags. <laughs> we, we can fight evil with projections of flags on the Arc de Triomphe. Absolutely not. But you've been taught that so that evil people can, can march through that. I mean, sure. I mean, every government that wants to do you harm wants to disarm you first. And every evil person who wishes to do you harm wants you to prefer niceness to virtue. Virtue is tough. Virtue is mean. Virtue is grisly. Virtue is ferocious. Virtue is a mama grizzly with the child of goodness in tow. Do not stand between the two. But, you know, we've been co-opted. And now if you're not nice, you're bad. But how do you defeat evil with niceness, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not what Jesus did. He didn't like the money changers. He didn't go give them a hug. He took out his whip and separated spine from skin on a fairly regular basis. Definitely. You know, it, uh, it's so perfect. Just today I was scrolling through Facebook and I have a friend. And now that you mentioned Jesus, it makes sense. My friend's Catholic. And she had this quotation, which I think fits it perfectly, encapsulates it. Do you mind if I read it out? Yeah. No, I don't mind. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So it says, Our culture has reduced all virtue to the universal virtue of niceness, which is no virtue at all. People comment, Oh, he is such a nice woman. Or, He is such a nice man. Which in essence, very often means that this man or woman 
never says or does anything to upset the person making the comment, never ruffles any feathers, never challenges anyone to rise to greater virtue. In a way, this person is a non-person who is admired for being so, for not getting in the way. I hope nobody who knows me ever describes me as nice in this context. I hope to upset the people around me occasionally, to rattle them from time to time, to channel them in ways that make them feel uneasy. Love makes demands upon us. To love someone means that from time to time you will be required by that love to tell someone something they would rather not hear. I thought that was just so perfectly well, yeah, happened. You've heard this show before and the number of – like when, when I someone comes into me having made really bad decisions for a long period of time, it tells me everything I need to know, that they have no one in their life willing to tell them the truth and confront them about the mistakes that they're making. None. None. And that idea of, I mean, once you get that, that your morals were instructed to you, you, you were instructed in morality by evil people so that you wouldn't interfere with their plans. Of course, niceness is perfect. And it's become such a foundational ethic and people have become so cowardly. It's a great excuse for cowardice, right? And, and it's a great excuse to get people to vent their frustrations at being morally impotent because they turn on anyone who's not nice, and attack them and vent all of their cowardly spleen on the person who's not nice. You have to be nice. You got to be nice. You got to be nice. Oh, here's an identifiable area of somebody making someone else uncomfortable of not being nice. Arr, arr. Right? So they, they have been infected with this niceness. And niceness in ethics is just a synonym for cowardice, right? And so cowardice becomes a virtue, which means when cowardice becomes a virtue, courage becomes a vice. Honesty becomes a vice. You don't need to be nice to say to somebody it's raining out when it's raining. Niceness is lie to people. That's what nice, all that niceness means is lie to people. Does my ass look big in these jeans? Yes. Yes, it does. Because... <laughs> you've got you've got the seams hanging on like a guy with one leg on the pier and one leg on the boat, and he's doing the splits and not happy about it. Have I gained weight? Yes. <laughs> yes, you have. Does what I'm saying make any sense? No. No, it doesn't, and here's why, right? What is niceness? Nice just, niceness just means manage other people's emotional hypersensitivity and dysfunctions and immaturity by creating a fantasy world of safe rooms and benevolent otherness. So that their reality doesn't get disturbed, their subjective fantasies. It, niceness means turn society into an asylum ward of appeasement of hypersensitive crazy people that you are weakening by appeasing. Niceness means lying to crazy people and attacking courageous people. Because you see, if you are nice, 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 and someone comes along and tells you the truth, well, they're not evil people. Evil people don't tell you the truth. They'll fill you full of lies. And then they'll take you over in a rush, right? French Revolution style or Russian Revolution style. But when you are addicted to niceness, then anyone who comes along and tells the truth, even if they do it in a relatively non-confrontational way, just tell the truth, like, like I did with Fritz, right? Then suddenly it provokes such ridiculous anxiety in them and such ridiculous hostility in them. Because here they see an example of somebody who actually is not using virtue as a self-serving, self-erasure. Conformity out of fear of being attacked. Niceness. Niceness is invisibility. Niceness is falsehood. And niceness is manipulation. 
manipulation. And when you make niceness, i.e. cowardice, a virtue, you make honesty and courage a vice. And um, these are the useful idiots of evildoers. And um, again, I don't blame the majority of people. The majority of people haven't been exposed to these kinds of ideas, don't understand the basic reality of the pathogen called niceness. But um, it's funny too, you know, people in America have no right to worship niceness, or in England for that matter, or other places in, in the West, because America was not founded by nice people. And when you say someone is not a nice person, what do people translate that into? Mean, nasty, evil, bully. Not nice means bad. Niceness or cowardice or conformity or compliance or lying to people or manipulating people or avoiding confrontation, that becomes a virtue, which means all the opposite must become a vice. Honesty, directness, confrontation, reminding people of their obligations becomes Advice, as I did earlier with the academics, right? You guys are taking hundreds of billions of dollars from the public purse. It's time to give back, you selfish, selfish bastards. Those who are doing it in that context. And so what happens is then evil people don't need to oppose good, courageous moralists because the nice, addicted mob will automatically attack the honest, direct truth-tellers who have integrity and are willing to be confrontational in the service of virtue they will be attacked by all of those addicted to nice. Because if a courageous person really displays moral courage and virtue and honesty and integrity, then the people who are, have been infected with the nice virus, the nirus, people who have been infected with the nirus, well, they recognize that they're not healthy, but in fact diseased. They recognize that they're not courageous. They're in fact cowardly. They recognize that niceness is not opposing evil, but niceness is a form of horizontal viciousness and falsehood that serves the needs of evil, then that they're not good. They're actually in the service of immorality. They're foot soldiers in the darkening clouds overtaking the world. And when someone has been lied into believing that evil is good, when they see true goodness, that is what they attack much more than the liar who drugged them to begin with. All right, I got to move on to the next caller, but I really, really appreciate the call. Thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime and good luck out there, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Up next, we have Morris. Morris wrote in and said, In virtually every form, the cost of health insurance is priced at an astronomically unreasonable markup over the expected dollar value. In many cases, having access to managed health care even produces worse outcomes. Why is the need to buy health insurance accepted as gospel when the actual risk slash reward of buying insurance is so absurdly bad for the customer? That's from Morris. I'm guessing you're calling from the States. Yes, I am. But it's and not what's, what's, happened to the, to your, what's happened to your insurance costs um, post-Obamacare or even pre? I, I don't have health insurance. I, and I've had health issues. Just Health insurance just makes it much more stressful and expensive. What do you mean? So, what it, do you mean? It, it, it's... You know, when you have health insurance, you want to get a test. They say, oh, the insurance doesn't cover this test. We have to do the test that's not as good. You have to wait to get approvals. You can't make the appointments on time, all this stuff. But this is not about my personal experience anyway. This is just about, like, even if we went three iterations of crazy back to, let's say, what it was in the 1980s or something, 
you know, I would still have the same argument. Right. Well, I will um, give you a story, um, and I guess more than a story, I will give you an economic argument. Healthcare is difficult to fund because, well, for a variety of reasons, but the question fundamentally when it comes to pricing healthcare or how to pay for healthcare is, do you pay when you're sick or do you pay when you're healthy? Uh, in China in the past, you paid a monthly fee to your doctor until you got sick and then you didn't pay him until you got better again, right? And what did that do to his incentive? Well, sure, it makes his incentive to, to keep you better, but he has other poor incentives. It might, it might incentivize him so you die. You know, that's not Why the would it incentivize him either. so that you die? Because you can't pay him if you're dead either. Well, if the monthly cost of what you're paying him is less than, um, yeah, if the monthly cost of what you're paying him is is uh, is is less than you know what uh, the cost of providing you healthcare is, then the incentive, the financial incentive, is to let you die. Oh, okay. So if you pay him, I don't know, fifty bucks a month uh, while you're healthy, and then you don't pay him when you get sick, but the cost of you being sick is more than he would imagine, then, then he would have an incentive to have you die. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, I can understand that. But then, of course, he would have the reputation of you pay this doctor until you get sick, and then he just lets you die, in which case he's going to lose all of his other patients, too, because they don't want that, right? Well, I, my thing is that uh, I would argue that health insurance is not, however you would get it, it would just, it would always be an astronomical cost to what it would actually cost you. It's kind of impossible. Hang just on, hang because on, the hang, cost... on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you, so you're saying that it will always be astronomical no matter what, no matter what free market incentives are in place, no matter how healthy you live, no matter how early you buy it in life, uh, no matter, it's always no, no, going to no, be astronomical, no. not, is that right? No, no, no. I, I'm not saying the free market's not going to work. I'm just saying, given what actually happens with health insurance. And yes, I'm taking a lot of, you know, what's going on today or even 20 no, years just ago. Just make the case. Just but, make the case. Okay. So if, um, so a lot of, a lot of what's going on is basically, um, if you had, if you would have saved when you were healthy from your twenties to your thirties, you know, and you just had what you would have saved for health insurance there, then an enormous percentage, probably over ninety percent of people, would never ha would never di you know reach into their pocket more than what they would have paid with health insurance. Okay, hang on. You've got savings, spending, and health insurance. So what you're saying is, if people put a certain amount of money aside every month, so health insurance, so health hang insurance on, let me, let me per finish. person. Let hang on, hang on. So if people put a certain amount of money aside every month in their 20s and 30s, when your health costs are generally low, then they would have enough money saved up to to pay for anything catastrophic that might happen later on. Yes. Okay, that's certainly one choice. That is one choice. However, there are certain situations where that won't happen, right? Like if you if you get injured to the point where you can't work again, right, dis disabled, then the amount of money you saved will not be enough because you basically are retiring at 40 with additional overhead. So there are catastrophic situations that can occur to you, rare, but but possible, wherein – I just remembered the, the – uh, 
when I was a kid, they used to hand out these pamphlets in school that you could buy this insurance. If you lose your thumb, you get paid this amount. If you lose your arm, you get paid this amount. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that would be a pretty good computer I could get if I lost my arm. Anyway, but um, so th- there but are predictable, there are predictable, there are predictable healthcare costs, right? I mean, you know, regular checkups, um, you know, you break an arm and they've got a give an x-ray and put it in a cast, you know, that's not going to break your bank, at least in a free market, right? The Oklahoma Surgery Center is pretty, pretty reasonable. And so there are non-bankrupting within the general bell curve of healthcare costs um, that, that you can handle without insurance. However, they, you know, there are, is catastrophic stuff, like you just you get weirdly sick, you get leukemia, you get like, and that's very, you need a bone marrow transplant in order to survive. There are low, op, like low opportunities, or no, sorry, sorry, there are low occurrence, high expense situations, right? There, there aren't any yes. high occurrence, high expense, unless you want to count like your deathbed kind of stuff, right? Which is at the end of your life, you should have paid your insurance throughout that process. Low occurrence, low cost, don't need it too rare and doesn't really cost much, right? Stub your toe, need a bandage on your toe or whatever. Um, And high occurrence, low cost, which is, you know, your regular checkups and all that, don't need insurance for. It's the uh, low occurrence, high cost that you need the insurance for. And that's really what it should be reserved for. But that, of course, is not what healthcare has mutated into uh, in terms of insurance, particularly in America. Right now, you have, uh, you know, crazy regular things being thrown into healthcare insurance that in no way, shape, or form, should be in healthcare uh, insurance because they're the result of uh, of choice. Birth control, birth control, not not a healthcare issue. Women's health—it's like you know the, the the freedom to tart around if you want, or if you're married, I guess, to just have sex without getting pregnant, which is I guess more reasonable. But that's not a um, uh, that that's not a healthcare issue. That's a, a lifestyle choice, and you should pay for it uh, yourself uh, because you know people who are celibate, people who are MGTOW, people who are nuns, they should not be paying for other people's uh, birth control and so on. And if you have moral objections to it, you shouldn't. So what they've done is they just loaded everything else on it. But of course, right? Because if people want cheaper stuff, then they can force other people to, to pay for it. Uh, so much the better. Like fertility treatments, right? I mean, well, if you're not married, if you're fertile, if you're beyond fertile years, uh, if you don't want kids, um, then fertility treatments you don't want to pay for. But of course, the people who are getting fertility treatments definitely want them to be on the insurance plan so that everyone else is forced to pay for them. And that's the kind of wrestling that happens. But um, uh, And of course, you could buy, and if you got married or whatever, or even when you were a teenager, you could buy infertility insurance so that if you wanted to have kids and were married and were having trouble conceiving or having trouble bringing a child to term, you could get that paid for. But uh, you know, there are other people who wouldn't uh, necessarily want to go through that. So there's, n- there's no reason for healthcare to be expensive. It's expensive on the, um, uh, on the consumption end because there are so many restrictions in the practice and the population of the healthcare field. And it's expensive on the insurance end because every uh, person with a medical question issue, problem, lifestyle issue, or problem wants to jump on the bandwagon to get um, paid for by everyone else. So um, there's no... Now, insurance companies in general work like the Chinese doctor, but with more access to uh, courts if they if they don't keep their end of the bargain up. But insurance companies, they don't make money if you're sick. They make money if you're healthy. Now, the traditional go to the doctor and pay, well, he makes money if you're sick, right? He doesn't make money if you're healthy. Uh, he makes money if you're sick. So having 
an agency intervene between the doctor and the patient that makes money only if the patient is healthy is a very positive step in terms of healthcare. And so insurance companies in the past would work very hard to keep you healthy. You'd get a deduction uh, if you were, you know, if you were not a smoker, you'd get it, and still that is the case in many places. You'd get a deduction if you were of a reasonable weight, if you, if you exercised, if your cholesterol was a reasonable uh, amount, uh, if your body fat ratio wasn't out of whack. And if you began to drift, the insurance company would say, whoa, 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 hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hang on a second here. You're starting to approach medical risk territory, so we're going to have to either adjust your rates or we're going to find some way to help you get back to something healthy. Uh, and so having an insurance company that needs you to stay healthy in order to make the most money is a wonderful intervention against the other problem, which is a doctor who makes money when you're sick. And socialized medicine, what money does it make from prevention? Socialized medicine makes money from treatment and, quote, cure, right? So there's no incentive in a socialized healthcare system to really work for prevention rather than cure. It doesn't mean it never happens, but uh, it's not the fundamental economic driver. So insurance is a wonderful way to give people price signals about bad healthcare, about bad health choices, or about, um, even if it's not a choice, like maybe you just have some genetic predisposition to X, Y, or Z, uh, which can be tracked and so on. So uh, if you want to bring healthcare costs down, of course, you have to increase the supply of healthcare providers until equilibrium is reached. And you also have to um, allow insurance companies to tailor their insurance offerings to whoever, um, uh, and whatever the market wants and not have these sort of mandated, you've got to include this, you've got to include that. Of course, you want competition across state lines and all of that kind of stuff. And most importantly, sorry, no pre-existing conditions. But in order to, to, to do that fairly and justly, you have to uncouple the payments for healthcare insurance from your employer, right, from your job. So there's a lot that needs to be done, but there's no reason why it can't be uh, nice and cheap and, and reasonable. You used to be able to get um, healthcare for an entire family, just working a week or two a year uh, back in the day. And uh, people say, oh, well, the technology, technology, no, no, no. Technology generally makes things cheaper uh, and better, right? So now you can get a scan instead of needing surgery. Well, a scan is cheaper than a surgery um, because they used to have to do exploratory surgery before they got, you know, MRIs and, um, and all those kinds of other machines that can go ping and look at your innards. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of insurance. I'm a huge fan of the free market. And that's the only way to bring the healthcare costs down. Well, my thing is not necessarily about bringing the health healthcare costs specifically down. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things um, that people do to um, minimize, um, you know, uncertainty. And you know, responsible quote responsible people would you know list these off on you know list these as things that you or you know anyone needs to do you know to be responsible. Like, you know, you got to go to college, you got to send your kids to school, you got to buy health insurance, you got to, you know, there's a whole list of them, you know, to all to, to minimize uncertainty, including health insurance. And my argument is that um, based on this, that's how this whole, you know, um, structure of how insurance is, is growing based on, you know, people's paranoia that they need health insurance. You know, the government I'm would never sorry, be I able to... I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you saying it's paranoia to think that you might have some catastrophic expensive ailment or accident or illness? 
Well, um, if you have a, a catastrophic um, thing happen to you, you know, it, it just, the question is, what are the chances that, you know, ha having paid insurance uh, is going to help your situation or save your life? Very high. You know, what? Yeah, very high. And, and right. catastrophic insurance is very cheap because it's so rare. Well, yes, it, it would be, um, you know, cheap. So Good. obviously, okay, so making... it's very cheap. So let's not worry about it. So let's deal with the issues that you're concerned about, which is what you referred to as an astronomically unreasonable markup over the expected dollar value. And again, I don't know what markup means. But uh, so let's not in worry about words, the things that are in other words, if, cheap. If I'm paying, if I'm paying for, um, you know, $1,000 of insurance, um, you know, average, you know, cost of what the doctor's visits should be in any example that you might read in like, you know, a free market book or someone's giving a presentation, you know, showing how insurance in the free market works. You know, the example they always give is, oh, you spend $1,000 of insurance, uh, um, you know, you know, 10 people spend $1,000 of insurance, you know, and then uh, one in 10, you know, you might get something that costs you 9,000. So the insurance pocket's 1,000, you know, and, uh, and you make, you know, and you save on that uncertainty. And if the numbers were so low, then that wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, based on how insurance is now, you know, sometimes that number is, you know, if, assuming you're not going to defraud the insurance company, sometimes those numbers are like 80 or 90% of the money is just going, you know, to not, <laughs> to not your expected cost of insurance. I don't, I don't know what any of that means, but maybe what we can do is just briefly touch before I move on to the next caller. Let's forget about healthcare insurance. Just look at um, your house burning down insurance, right? Fire insurance for your house. Well, yes, fire insurance. Right. We so fire, fire insurance, right? It's very rare to have your house burned down. And for the vast majority of people, they will pay their whole lives for fire insurance and never put in a claim, right? That's right. Is that a ripoff? It depends what the cost is, right? Well, no. If, if somebody, let's say it's a free market situation and somebody chooses voluntarily to pay for their fire insurance, is it a ripoff? Well, no. Because the whole point is you don't know. And you're, you're saying, someone, okay, well, I'm going to pay 50 bucks a month for fire insurance because my house is worth $400,000 and the contents are worth another $100,000 or whatever. So I'm going to pay 50 bucks a month uh, for the peace of mind of not worrying about when my house burns down and I'm out half a million bucks. Right. But even if you take fire insurance, I'm just, I, I'm the argument, well, the point that I'm making is that, you know, if you take these different kinds of insurances, and look at what the costs are and look at what people are willing to pay. Um, you know, like, for example, my, uh, my dad's house, when he was insuring it with fire insurance, the cost of the house was like 600000 and he was paying $2,000 a year for, uh, you know, for fire and some other stuff that can never happen insurance. Um, there was no, like, I calculated it, you know, all, it was like close to 100% profit for the insurance company assuming well, geez, my, man you know, i'm okay then then you're you're doing the wrong thing with your life in calling into this show i don't mean that you shouldn't be calling into the show i'm i'm glad for that but what you've done is you have identified a massive entrepreneurial market opportunity because if, this if, is hang, on, hang, on, hang on hang on hang on hang on 
If you have greedy insurance companies that are ripping off your dad by overcharging him for his fire insurance, if you can run an insurance company that only has to charge $1,000 while providing the same coverage or even $100, then you need to put down your phone Go to the bank with your business plan and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have insurance companies vastly overcharging people. No, I'm not saying that the insurance company profits that much. I'm saying that given the fact, you know, that you are honest, that you're not going to defraud the insurance company, then that you're losing all that money. The insurance company has to deal with other uncertainty. Wait, wait, what do you mean you're losing no. the money? I don't understand. You mean because your house didn't burn down? No, because... Um, the insurance company has to uh, price it, pricing in um, fraud and um, their costs for administration, um, you know, and uh, to verify, you know, basically, you know, everything uh, surrounding. Yeah, you know, okay, so I get it. I get it. There's cost to running a business. I get it. And, and by the way, if you want cheaper healthcare and you want cheaper insurance, what you need to do is bring high IQ people into your country rather than low IQ people into your country because low IQ people commit a lot more fraud and are a lot less healthy when it comes to uh, their lifestyle, their habits, or maybe even their genetics. So if you have high IQ immigrants, then that helps a lot in terms of bringing your costs down. So I'm afraid, I'm There's sorry no we argument. haven't gotten anywhere, but I never know where the hell you're going and what you're talking about. So I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I do appreciate having the chance uh, to talk about this. Who's up next? Mr. Mike? Up next, we have Stephanie. Stephanie wrote in and said, Although the Women's March was months ago, I would like to hear Stefan's take on how it is still resonating now through ad campaigns and consumerism. Why is it being portrayed that this is what the modern woman is? Are women like me in the minority? How do anti-feminists create a loud voice in a crowd of out-of-control self-entitled females? That's from Stephanie. Hey, Steph, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Um, so, what's your history with, uh, well, with the Lady I, Force? Uh, I, called in, I called in a year ago, and um, I was the anti-feminist confesses all. Oh, yes, and yes. Nice to chat with you again. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, I, I feel I'm, I may be beating a dead horse here, but the um, women's march really, really just grinded my gears. Um, mainly because I, I took it as like a direct assault on uh, stay-at-home mothers or conservative women, um, and it, the media just took that and ran with it. And now that is the modern woman. That is who young girls need to aspire to, and it. And it even goes farther to um, my husband and I recently, we went to Chicago and on dumpster ads, like on the side of the road by the bus stop, there was a, um, a poster for DSW shoes. And it said that um, he said that women need to be in the house. And I said they should be in the Senate, too. And it's just mindless, stupid uh it's not even facts. I mean, obviously there's women in the house, obviously there's women in the Senate, but what's wrong with a woman being in the house? You know, it's just that attack of, you know, here, here's this ad buy six inch, six inch heels, you know, shop our uh, stores and then you'll have a successful career and look sexy. And that's what you should be without any 
you know, you, you shouldn't be constrained to the house. And um, <laughs> constrained to the I've house. It's, it's not a prison for God's sakes. Right, right. It's not, the marriage is not like house arrest. I mean, good lord. It's it's um, and I've noticed that I've noticed that you know throughout this you know past few months with um, President Trump being in office that it's being pushed so hard in in the media and in commercials and it's just um you know where where is our voice where are the women who who don't put up with that crap you know where where can we be the most effective other than being in the home and raising our family obviously but how do we kind of step up to the plate and fight back you know against this feminism well, I mean, it's a great question. It's a great question. And feminism is generally targeted uh, against uh, white conservative women. Feminists aren't out there saying that to, to, to black women, well, you're having too many kids and you really got to stop having so many kids. And they're not out there talking to Muslim women in, in Europe, right, who have a very high birth rate and saying, well, no, no, see, environmentally unfriendly, zero population growth, you've got you to not have as many kids, right? They're not out there lecturing, right, the other groups. Uh, it is, uh, it's a white conservative female and white conservative women have the most uh, babies, right? I mean, this is so, uh, there is a sort of white depopulation ethos to this kind of stuff that's kind of hard to miss, you know, like you don't see it till you see it. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. I guess it's like Lena Dunham's bikini pics. You might want to. You might even try to do it with a fork, but you just can't do it, and it will flash in your minds at most inappropriate times, thus allowing you to last longer. Anyway, so it is, um, I think, sort of identifying it for what it is. And, and I'll give you an example, right? You, you've heard of um, Marine Le Pen, uh, the uh, woman who's, who's running for head of the French government at the moment? Heck yeah. Heck yeah, right. So, yeah. you know, an intelligent, articulate, courageous, brilliant female politician. And um, do you know one of the demographics that supports her the most is men? Is men. Now, if feminists were at all interested in women rather than being useful pear-shaped idiots for socialism, then they would be writing articles saying, wow, it's a shame it didn't happen here, but look, there are men over there in France really getting behind a female candidate, really supporting a female candidate. They have overcome sexism, they have overcome patriarchy, and they are rock-solid behind a female candidate for leadership of a Western nation. Ever, ever heard anything to do with that? No. No, of course not. Of course not. Because nothing to do with women. Women are the human shields for the expansion of communism. Not, don't care about women at all. If they cared about women, they'd be praising Ann Coulter, and they'd be praising Michelle Malkin, and they'd be praising Margaret Thatcher and Ayn Rand, and um, all these other you know, powerful, intelligent, articulate, uh, amazing women who... <laughs> rock the world with uh, truth and virtue. And they don't, right? That Those women are attacked viciously. It's, it's the exploitation of women. And of course, you know, communists are so into, well, don't exploit people. And socialists are, don't exploit people. Use people as, 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 
as people, not not things, and don't fear the other. It's it's all nonsense. All all they're doing is projecting on everyone else what they themselves are doing. They are using, in general, less intelligent women in order to advance their cause. They're exploiting women and using women up. Because rather than saying to women, look, not all of you are going to be cut out to be executives or politicians or doctors or lawyers. For some of you, and this is true for men as well, slightly more true for women based on the bell curve, but it's, you know, your happiest life, your happiest world is going to be with with hearth, with children, with family, with home. What uh, the Germans used to say, what makes a woman happiest is uh, church, kitchen, children. Now, I mean, I understand it's not for all women. I mean, the, the women who have influenced me enormously, a lot of them are childless. A lot of them never got married, and that's fine. I mean, not like everyone has to. But for a lot of women, there is a great deal of joy in parenthood. And I say this as a stay-at-home dad. There is enormous joys in, uh, in parenthood that even some of my skyscraper-reaching rants can't match. So it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. But you see, for the left, right, for socialists, for communists, for globalists, white conservative women having children, well, they're going to raise them to be white conservatives, right, in general, religious, and and skeptical of state power, and into smaller government, and resistant to ever-increasing incursions into civil, political, and economic liberties. And, (laughs) last but not least, white Christian women, well, they tend to raise children who know how to use guns. Ah, yeah. Right? Am, (laughs) am Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Not wrong. So there, you know, you all are in the way. And the less you breed, right? Remember, communists, uh, socialists, globalists, they're in the long con, right? They're in the long game, right? They're, they're, they're willing to spend generations to achieve their goal. They're into the long con. And so, yeah, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have kids, well, there's just that, that much fewer conservatives in the way for them to expand the power of the state. And so it is a... Um, that's that to me is is fundamentally what it's uh, what it's all about, and everything else is just some sort of ridiculous excuse. And you know this because they're vicious and vile propagandists as a whole, uh, because they will viciously and and ruthlessly attack people who point out biological differences between men and women, who point out biological differences in brain size, even after adjusting for body weight, who uh, point out biological differences in the number of neural connections, who point out biological or statistical differences in the spread of men and women along the bell curve of intelligence and so on. They're not interested in facts. They're, I mean, they're just interested in using less intelligent women often to pursue their agenda, to pursue their goals of infiltrating and dominating increasingly shakily free societies. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy to hear counter-arguments. This is a hypothesis that I've been working on for a while with, with some help. I'm happy to hear counter-arguments, but that's the only one that, to me, fits the bill. Like, if you want to reduce the population of a particular group, well, you figure out what their weaknesses are. Well, you see, their weaknesses are that they're sensitive to the long term, they're sensitive to the needs of minorities, they're sensitive to the environment, so you use all of that. 
You teach them to hate themselves so that they don't want to reproduce. You teach them to hate their own culture so they don't want to reproduce. You teach them to worry about the environment so they don't reproduce. You uh, teach them to become hedonistic so that they don't want to willingly pursue the natural time-consuming labor of making, having, and raising uh, children. And also what you do is you make them as unappealing uh, physically as, as possible. So you tell women the basic lie that it's only their personality that matters. And it's not that that's a lie. It's not that the personality is unimportant, but men are visual creatures. And so you, you, give, you infect them with low sexual market value. And you do that in a number of ways. First of all, you promote alternative ways of looking, right? And you can see these tragic pictures online of women before and after they got infected with social justice warrior leftism in university, usually. So they go from, you know, normal, nice, healthy looking women, you know, like uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, heroine of Freaks and Geeks, two freaks, right? They got half-shaved heads and dyed hair and piercings and weird tattoos and black lipstick. And it's, um, it, it makes them physically horrible, right? And, and so that's a great way to make sure they don't have kids is to make them as physically unappealing as possible. And so the funny thing is too, and then you say, well, you see, it's only personality that matters. And then you make the bodies as unappealing to men as humanly possible. Their faces and hair as unappealing to men, normal men, uh, healthy men as humanly possible. And then what you do is you make their personalities as unappealing as humanly possible to, uh, to men right? Because you make them resentful and you make them fearful of the patriarchy and you make them believe that they're living in a rape culture and you make them believe that all men are predators and you make them believe that they're being exploited and have been for thousands and thousands of years. And you only talk about it with white people, right? You never, ever talk about the Muslim countries and what some of those Muslim countries do to their women, right? So you make men and women in a particular group dislike each other as much as humanly possible, uh, and you make the men afraid, and you make the women resentful, and you make the women as physically unappealing as possible, and uh, that way, oh, and also you tell them to to be fat positive, right? You you say, uh, oh yeah, no, you're 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 beautiful at any size, and it's like, no, no, you're not. Sorry, sometimes you're not plus sized, sometimes you're not big boned, sometimes you're not even generous hipped, although I'm sure they'd like to be. <laughs> But sometimes you're just fat and gross. Sorry. I mean, like, it's just the way that it is. And this is not just some sort of weird male preference. Um, your fertility goes down when you're overweight. Your lifespan goes down when you're overweight. Men want to invest in women who are going to stick around. Men want to invest in women who are going to be able to take care of their children and raise healthy children. And fat moms often can't raise Healthy children. I mean, I've seen them at the daycares and at the, um, I've seen them at the play centers that I go to uh, with my daughter. Um, I mean, I'm 50 and I'm in there climbing around and playing tag and, and running all over the place and stuff. And the fat women, I've never seen one, never seen one do it. And so they can't roughhouse, they can't play, they can't run around. Uh, and so their kids are going to be more sedentary and the kids are going to be unhealthier. And and so the kids are going to grow up with lower sexual market value. And, you know, if, they're, if the overweight is leading to early uh, death um, or premature death, right, death in their 50s or, or 60s, then they're not even around to help with the grandkids, which is a huge deal, right? A relationship with grandparents is very, very important if it can be achieved in a healthy way for kids. So um, it's just this telling this basic lie. 
And um, of course, I mean, you know, for men too, anyone who uh, thinks that uh, personality is all that matters, well, um, I will refer to you to the aforementioned Freaks and Geeks, which is a pretty good show and uh, reminds me a lot of my history. But um, yeah, so so there's a, it's a great way if you want to reduce the prevalence of a certain population. And I don't think it's any particular hatred for white conservative Christians or anything like that in particular. It's just that's the most prominent group that interfere with the ascendancy of leftists to power. And so it's nothing personal in a sense. It's, it's you're sorry you're in the way. You know, like if, uh, if, I'm, uh, if I'm biking and there's a log on the path and I got to stop and move the log, it's not that I hate the log. Sorry, you're, you're just in the way of my destination. And um, I, I would put it that way in particular. And the last thing I'll mention, of course, is that you want to make relations between the genders, right? Since you need that to, to make the babies, right? You, you wanna, if you want to reduce a particular population, you make the relations between the genders as fractious and as dangerous as humanly possible, right? So you have, you know, crazy um, rape laws. You have, uh, and, and not just rape laws, but I mean, you have crazy, um, uh, these uh, tribunals or whatever you call them that, that show up in universities where the accuser uh, can accuse, doesn't sometimes have to even be present. You can't bring a lawyer, and, and it's just nuts, right? Uh, and then you have alimony and, and child support laws. You have a horrible uh, family court system that you ban debtors' prison for everyone except men who aren't paying outrageous um, child support and alimony payments. And then you can throw them in jail and then throw them in jail again because they've been in jail and therefore can't get a good job to pay for all of this sort of stuff. So you make it as dangerous as humanly possible and as fractious as humanly possible and you, you pay women to destroy families right, by extracting money from men and, and paying the women. Uh, and uh, then it becomes really terrifying to, uh, to get married. And this isn't just in the West. This has also happened in uh, Japan as well. And this is a way of um, reducing population. See, I mean, because people think it's also anti-white racism and so on. I don't think it is. I think, I mean, maybe there's some elements in it, but I think it's basically just like, sorry, conservative whites are in the way of globalist governments and therefore they need to be replaced with uh, other populations more amenable to big government and uh, they need to be taught not to have kids. They need to be frightened of each other. They need to be indoctrinated with low sexual market value and they uh, need to be... um, you know, you need to hand out birth control like candy and you need to convince the women uh, to go and get an education and to go and have a career. Don't worry, you can have children later because if you can get women to postpone childbirth, then you're going to end up with fewer children from that particular group. That's just math, right? <laughs> because if you start having kids in your mid-30s, the chances that you're going to have more than one or two are very low. Now, it doesn't mean you have to have six if you start in your early to mid-20s, but the odds are, if you want them, that you're going to be able to achieve them. Whereas if you start in your mid-30s, much less likely to have any kids because you might not find the right partner. You might have one. And then, of course, you say, you know, it'd be great if you adopted kids who aren't white. <laughs> you understand, right? It's just all. And, but see, if you say, well, it's just anti-white, well, explain Japan. Japan is suffering the most radical depopulation on the planet. I mean, outside of war, I don't know any population that's just declined as quickly. In 100 years, there'll be nobody left in Japan. Like nobody. I'm not like nobody left in Japan. And they're doing it to themselves, Right? There's no external group of leftists who are plotting and planning or when they don't right, they're not solving it through immigration. So it's not just, you know, whatever the cabal and anti-white racism, there's lots of other things. But Japan is doing it to uh, to itself. And um so that to me is sort of the big picture. Sorry for going on for so long, but that to me is sort of the big picture of what's being fought. Does that how does that fit with what you think? Is there anything you wanted to add or subtract to what I'm saying? 
No, I completely agree. And I'm, I was shocked at to how many women were so susceptible to this propaganda. You know, women that I thought were intelligent or had some sort of knowledge of what was really going on. I mean, I saw them going to this march and it, and that that's what really shocked me was, you know, how can you just show up at an event that you know nothing about, but yet you think it's it's for a good noble cause, you know? Like, that was one of the things that really shocked me. And it's everywhere. Listen, just go and talk to um, young women uh, in their sort of early to mid-teens and ask them about their futures. And they will talk about travel and they will talk about careers and they will talk about education and so on. And you can't find one in 50 in, in many places, particularly urban areas, uh, particularly in multicultural areas. You can't find one in 50 that says, man, marriage and kids, that's what I really want. They have absorbed an enormous amount of anti-child, pure hedonism, propaganda, wherein, you know, women are not entirely immune to vanity. And if you can convince women that the smart, successful, popular, and attractive women go have careers while the dumb, slovenly women stay home and raise children like bovine cows, well, I mean, who wants to be the bovine cow, right? I mean, it, it's just going to naturally push women towards that. Uh, and by the time they find out that they're not going to be high-flying lawyers, that they're going to be sitting there begging the phone not to ring in some customer complaint department while sitting under fluorescent lights as their eggs die from lack of exposure to vitamin D and sperm, then, um, well, then it, hopefully it'll be too late, right? I mean, it's once you can convince people that something's cool and something's uncool, then people will just gravitate towards the cool, right? I mean, uh, and if you can convince women that the smart, successful, intelligent, competent, Super women go into careers and, you know, oh, I get that. Getting pregnant is being a loser. I mean, it's, you know, that, this is how you depopulate people. It's, it's not that different from involuntary sterilization in terms of its effects, you understand. I'm not talking in terms of the initiation of force. Although, of course, um, kids are forced to be in these indoctrination camps of government schools run by, um, well, sometimes a lot of crazy coven feminists. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I got... Um, I saw a message the other day from a woman who was saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm in class and there's all these feminists. I'm in university and they said, what do you want to do? I said, I really want to get married and have kids. And the, the professor went nuts. Went nuts. What are you, crazy? You're going to end up dependent on a man? What if he leaves you? You're going to end up on welfare? you got to have your own income. you got to have your own independence. Otherwise, you're just a slave to a man. Like, just crazy shit? Yeah, yeah, that's much better. Be a slave to the government. Be a slave to a boss. Yeah, that's going to be fulfilling because Lord knows the government and the boss are going to be there when you're dying to hold your hand as you slip into the great beyond. And it's really, really important. You know, you don't want to leave people behind. You don't want to leave people who can remember you. You don't want to leave warm feelings. You don't want to remember hugs and the smell of babies and, and learning all of the wonderful things that babies can do and toddlers can do. You don't want to have great conversations with your children and watch their minds open up and their personalities rise like Atlantis from the bottom of the ocean to face the universe in a compelling and positive manner. You don't want any of that. You don't want to leave actual human beings walking around talking about you, remembering you, uh, lighting candles. Uh, every day on the day that you died and remembering you forever. You don't want any of that. You know what you want? You know what you really want to leave behind? Briefs and memos. That's really, really important. You know, human beings are one thing, but dear God, paperwork that goes to a landfill in time, that's the shit you want to spend your life on. 
And Instagram selfies, right? And Instagram selfies, that's right. So you can remember how hot you looked with your blue hair and your weird piercings and your 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 um, third boob known as an underchin. Well, and what I, I find ironic, too, is, you know, feminism pushes the traveling and, you know, look amazing at the office and, you know, have the best Instagram makeup. But yet they're also pushing for, you know, communism and anti-capitalism and i just i i think that in itself is hilarious that you know these these women are are falling for that narrative too well they want to push the cool and you can't push the cool without the pretty right you can't push the cool without the pretty and this hostility uh is really quite astonishing all right, guilty secret time. Are you ready? I'm, I'm send it. Okay. Do you remember at the beginning of this call, or maybe the last time we talked, Steph? Do you remember? Do you remember that vague feeling of respect that you had for me? Yes. Okay. Are, are you are you going to be willing to bid it a fond adieu for all time? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Okay. With three syllables, three syllables alone, Steph, can I actually uh, completely shred and destroy any lingering respect you might have for me? Are you ready? Oh, man. I know. It, it all comes down here. It all comes crashing down here. And I apologize to everyone for this. But, I, you know, <laughs> I feel it's important to speak this in terms of honesty and in terms of um, actually moving this conversation, right? I mean, forward in a way. I think that's quite compelling. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Let's Are do you it. Ready? Here we go. Let's do it. Three syllables coming up. Brace yourself. Crash helmet on. Assume the crash position. And they are the following. On to Raj. Are you talking about the TV show? And the movie. And the movie? (laughs) And the movie. (laughs) Yes. Have you ever seen it? No. Oh, good. Okay, so good. At least there's still a one-way respect in this. I don't know what happened to me, but it's... um, I I just... I I, I watched the movie. (laughs) I watched the movie. And um, I watched the movie. It's it's mostly just weather porn for me. Like just seeing people in California in in the middle of late Canadian winter. It's like it's just it's just weather porn. Oh sunshine! I see a belly button, <laughs> and I see skin not pasty. So uh, so in Entourage, right? I mean, there are these four uh, young guys, uh, and there are all of these like I don't know, curvaceous spermsicles that just gonna hang around in bikinis and so on right and um there's no kids no kids nobody has any kids all ambitious nobody has any kids nobody right well i guess in the movie right sorry spoiler right in the movie ian his um on again off again uh girlfriend um slade sean anyway uh, they they have a baby, but they have no relationship. They're not married. They're in again, out again, off again, on again. I mean, just it's a complete mess, right? And um, this is um, cool, right? They're they're relatively attractive guys. Uh, even turtle lost weight. Sloan, that's it. Uh, and and they're cool, right? They have cool cars and cool careers, and they have lots of money, and they can have empty sex, and nobody ever gets an STD, and nobody ever has an unwanted pregnancy. Although there's a gotcha in the uh, in the movie, and Anari is is a hilariously violent sociopath. <laughs> you know, like I mean, it's 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 all be cool, 
This is cool stuff. They're cool. They have the life that people dream of, right? A lot of people dream of, right? I mean, the top fantasy for British kids is to be famous. For what? Don't know. Doesn't matter. Just be famous. And none of this is around having kids. None of this is around. None of the Europeans are allowed to have children. Are you talking about sex in the city? Because it kind of sounds the same thing. Well, yeah, sex in the city, or as Ann Coulter pointed out, uh, basically it's just, it's gay people with tits, right? I mean, it's just life of gay people with tits. But it's the same thing, right? I mean, who gets married? Who has fun? Who has positive stuff? I mean, it's it's like Californication, right? Which is uh, nobody has kids or the kids are all messed up. Show all the horrible stuff around parenting continually to white people. Show all the horrible stuff around parenting continually to white people. Don't show any happy parents. Don't show any happy families. And for, for God's sakes, never show the parents as wiser than the children. Always show the children rolling their eyes at the parents. Because what that does is it programs children, when they, particularly when they grow into be teenagers, to be unbearably arrogant, which makes parenting less fun, less positive, less pleasant, less difficult. And the more you can make families fight the less the kids want to grow up and become parents. Because the more you can teach people to have no respect for their parents and no respect for their culture and no respect for their history, then the less they want to grow up and have kids. It's beautiful for radical depopulation of groups that are in the way of you gaining maximum power as a statist. It's, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And this is why, you know, when, when I sort of point out the positivities of parenting and the positivities, parenting is fantastic parenting is so great parenting is easy parenting is enjoyable parenting is incredibly rich Uh, parenting is unbelievably fun Uh, and parenting is the greatest experience outside of marriage in this show i mean they're all sort of mixed in together it's hard to separate them but it is the top one of the top three greatest experiences of my life Uh, and uh, i wouldn't have traded it for anything whatsoever and so how often do you see that portrayed in the media? How often have you seen it portrayed in a movie or a television show or a novel or anything like that, where the woman who forgoes the career in education and has kids is wonderfully satisfied and happy, while the career woman gets progressively more bitter and lonely? Yeah, no, not at all. You ever seen it? Never. No. Well, and, I, and then that's what's so frustrating because, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And I see all the wonderful things, you know, it's, I was thinking the other day, like, oh, summer's coming. Awesome. Cause that's when I start canning and pickling and, you know, you, I can take my daughter and show her how to do these things. And, you know, we, we plotted, we, um, tilled some land. So now we can set up a garden. We order chickens, you know, it's just like all these wonderful things that I can teach my daughter and nobody, you know, that scene is stupid or simple or um you know no no ambition yeah and relationships in the business world tend to be hierarchical whereas relationships in a positive family tend to be more egalitarian it doesn't mean like you have no authority as a parent or anything like that but there's an honesty that's in parenting that it's hard to get in the business world at least in my experience and um it's a, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And nobody ever, nobody ever goes to the Jewish population and says, you know, you're having way too many kids. You guys should have just have less kids, fewer kids. I mean, because that would be considered a pretty horrible intrusion into another person's culture and kind of anti-Semitic, right? You know, it'd be great right. if the world had, right? I mean, you know, this would just be a pretty horrible thing uh, to do. Um, 
but uh, it is considered to be uh, natural for conservative uh, white uh, Christians. Yeah, I never, I never saw it as depopulation. That's interesting. I never, ever even considered that. But that's the effect, right? And we can yeah. see this. Uh, we can see this happening uh, among uh, white populations. And that's the great gotcha. You know, have way fewer kids. Oh, wait, sorry, we don't have enough people. We need to bring in Muslim migrants. Sorry. Yeah. Psych. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and people and I, say, I, oh, I, I got into a, like people will say, oh, well, you see, the reason why you needed all of these immigrants to come into the West was because there wasn't enough labor force. Right. Right. <laughs> Of course, there's no way to automate anything in this world, right? I mean, if there had been a labor shortage, it would have just driven up the profits of automation, which would have been just fine. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't until slavery began to die out that we got automated farm machineries, right? You didn't get combine harvesters while they were still slaves because people who invested in slaves didn't want to also invest in machines that would destroy the value of their slaves to look at it from a sort of cold economic calculation standpoint. So... If there had been, like, there were fewer, fewer kids, uh, fewer kids around for a while, fewer workers around for a while, so fine. So the price of labor goes up, which stimulates uh, automation. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but you start bringing in all these foreign workers, oh, guess what? No robot maids for you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just so ridiculous, the arguments that people made. Come on, accept it. The left wanted people to vote for them, and they couldn't convince anyone, so they didn't vote people. Let's forget all these other explanations, which is nonsense. Well, and I've seen in my own community or other places that I've lived just the rise of um, the Muslim population. And, you know, there's certain places that you don't go back in my hometown now because it's dangerous and um, you're definitely in the minority and you can't trust the other people around you. Well, and it's yeah. uh, for, for women, right? I mean, we, we've talked to people in Sweden and other places uh, on this show where the... Women are afraid to go out at night. Right. No, you're now, you're now housebound. It's kind, kind of funny, you know, because in some Muslim countries, you're really not allowed out of your house if you're alone as a woman. And, and now, anyway, you understand the, uh, the irony. Right. But yeah, so I mean, well, this and, is, uh, it's, it's just, again, I mean, I wouldn't take it personally like racism or it's, it's the ideology fundamentally. There's just a big overlap between white conservatives and, and small state Right, the pro-Republican, pro-Constitution, small state people, uh, and it's the small state thing. You know, if if, if sort of Republican or, or sorry, say Republican, if if conservative whites were pro-globalism, which you know, I guess a kind of a contradiction and all that, then you know, it'd be like, yeah, have have as many kids as you want. In fact, we encourage you to have more. Right? And the environmentalists aren't going and saying, well, see, the problem is we're taking a lot of people from low environmental consumption or environmental destruction populations and moving them in into uh, first world countries, and we're giving them massive amounts of, of um, welfare money and, and free Mac airs, and, and now they're going to be consuming many more of the Earth's precious and scarce resources. Right? Nothing to do with that. Environmentalism is a way of making sure white people don't have kids and making sure that um, uh, white countries don't achieve energy self-sufficiency uh, so that uh, more money can keep pouring into um, the Middle East. That's, I mean, fundamentally, I think that's what it's all about. And the rest of it is all just a bunch of nonsense because it's so ridiculously inconsistent in how it's applied. Right. So you're saying to have more kids. <laughs> well, I, you know, 
you know, if I had the choice, the more the merrier, but time has, has marched on. But um, yeah, it's not, uh, not the worst thing in the world, I would say. Yeah, good, because uh, we're expecting again. So that's great. Woohoo! Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You know what's great for kids? Uh, toddlers in particular. Um, entourage. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, so you, you still have a shred of respect for me, but should you ever dip into um, entourage, you'll lose it. But uh, it is, uh, to me, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is my, this is my pathetic defense. So uh, I'm aware of that and it has no credibility, uh, even with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um <laughs> I, I, I can view these things, you see, Stephanie, from a from a philosophical, <laughs> sociological perspective of gathering the zeitgeist. And la, la, la. Anyway, you understand. <laughs> this, this is my uh, pitiful excuse for um, watching people dance on yachts. Anyway, uh, is there anything else you wanted to uh, to mention regarding this? No. Well, thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it. Up next, we have Jana wrote in and said, over the past. It's obvious there has been a co-opting, distortion, and abuse of what we call, quote, mysticism, end quote, or, quote, religion, end quote, both in its esoteric form, i.e. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and in its somewhat more esoteric tradition, i.e. yoga traditions, Buddhism, psychedelics, shamanism, Kabbalah, etc., if we denounce mysticism altogether because of its recent co-opting and inversion by largely nefarious anti-individual forces, would that perhaps be like a woman denouncing all men because of prior bad relationships, or a poor father figure, or because Stalin was a man? Do you think that reason-slash-rational and mysticism-slash-irrational need and compete with each other? Wouldn't reason without mysticism be like masturbating versus making love? With reason alone, you might get a few thrills, but ultimately, wouldn't you die alone with your dick in your hand? That's from Jana. Uh, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. You know, if a man has a dick in his hand, he's never quite alone. But uh, I know what you mean. I get I get the <laughs> analogy. I get the, you're, you're with dick. Um, <laughs> so, uh, can you, do, do you want to break this out a, a, a little bit more to make sure we're starting on the same page? Sure. I mean, I, I just, there's, um, you know, even just like in listening to your last segment with Stephanie, um, it was still very literal in terms of, you know, perhaps advice that you would give in that regard or, and, you know, sometimes, and, you know, and just even thinking about, um, let's just say, you know, this sort of anti-white movement. And I would say it's probably more individual, anti, uh, anti-individual, and that perhaps the white race has probably the strongest inclination towards individuality, um, is sort of at the leading edge at this time. But I, I think sometimes for pattern recognition, the synthesis of philosophy and mysticism sort of trans, turns knowledge into knowing, you know, and being able to not just um, evaluate things intellectually, but sometimes also to let them flow through you. And obviously you don't want to sacrifice one for the other, but then, and know when each, when to apply, put your foot on either pedal, you know, 
No, this is interesting because and this is a challenge I have with people who are sort of pro-mysticism is that each individual word, I understand. Mm-hmm. Even two or three of them together, I'm following. But when I get a whole series of sentences, I don't have a lot of illumination afterwards than, than before. So why don't we start with something just a little bit more basic to make sure I'm on the same uh, okay, wavelength. Well, so hang on, hang on. Say... No, no, no. Let me, let me okay. ask the question. Okay. That's, that's what I'm about to do. Um, define mysticism for me, please. I would say it's more of an experience rather than an explanation. Um, okay, if it can't be encapsulated in language, a conversation becomes somewhat impossible. Like if you if you're on this hold show, on, hold on, hang on, hang on. if you're on this show and you want to do, I don't know, the way I communicate is through interpretive mime then we can't mm-hmm. really have a conversation because it can't see you. So if it can't be encapsulated in language, I'm not really sure what we're going to be talking about. Though I, I hadn't finished my sentence. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I would say it's the experience of direct communion with, with an objective reality, with an ultimate reality. Wait, wait, objective or ultimate? Because if it's objective, then we can describe it through language and it's not mystical, right? Direct communion with objective reality would be sense data of empirical, of the empirical universe. That would be science, not mysticism. So, I would say ultimate reality. Okay, so ultimate reality. So what does ultimate mean here? Um, it would be like the logos, like the original idea or intention and and allowing of that to flow through you. Like when we go, I have the advantage of being quite immersed in nature where I am geographically and uh, kind of like living on the Shire in a way, you know, and I understand, you know, there is that, that imminent feeling of something seeping into the whole system, really, you know, a contaminating element that is sort of overtaking um, something perhaps that had uh, a pure intention initially, you know. Okay, sorry. And I just I, I this sort of word salad fortune cookie stuff. I don't really know what to make of it. You're giving me a bunch of words, but I'm sort of asking for a definition, and and I don't know how to make that more clear. But um, what does what does it mean when you say mysticism? You know, a flowing through experience of ultimate logos uh, doesn't. Um, doesn't doesn't clear anything up for me. And maybe this is what you mean when you say it's directly experiential rather than something that can be encapsulated. It is experiential, in and that and that's and that's the thing. And and it's more of your intuitive communication with the world around you that transcends words. And so there's a uh, you know an as a okay, writer, but we're and- we're we're talking. You know, how are you going to tell me something that transcends words? We're using words the only way we have to communicate. I'm well. I'm saying, you know, you it, it can be. You know, sometimes we use the finger to point at the moon, but the words aren't the moon, you know, so um, it, it, it's leading rather. And I would say it's, you know, has to do with immediate spiritual intuition of truths um, that transcend a, a, an ordinary understanding. OK, Jada, Jada, come on. Come on. How long have you been listening to the show for? Like three months. OK, great. Hang on, hang on, no, 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 hang on, this is the part where I'm going to ask a question or two, because, you know, my show and all. Um, So, 
you're calling into a show that is empirical, philosophical, rational, objective, and so on, right? And yeah. you know that I've said that it's very, very important to have definitions, right? Mm -hmm. So this can't be a surprise to you that I'm going to ask you for definitions. And if you're just of stringing course. a whole bunch of words together that aren't a definition, then I'm going to call you on that, right? Fine. Okay. So is it my understanding that you obviously wanted to talk for a couple of weeks, but you don't have a definition of mysticism other than subjective experience. experiences, right? Right. Which is not a definition. Um, you, you're talking about not? your feelings with regards to nature. That's not an objective definition. It doesn't mean it doesn't I exist. I wasn't it offering mean that part as, an, as the objective definition. I'm saying it's an experience of direct communion with an ultimate reality. But that, that, that's meaningless. That, that Philosophically, what you're saying is you might as well be speaking some foreign language, right, that neither of us understand. Because ultimate reality is not a definition, right? Because I, I don't know what the definition of, like, putting the word ultimate in front of something doesn't, doesn't explain anything. Well, do you, do you have no regard for anything divine? Well, now we're going to have to we're going to have to define define divine. Ooh, that <laughs> say that three times fast. But now we're going to have to because I don't know what you mean by divine. Do you mean a sense of of gl the glory of nature and a sense of transcendence uh, based on the beauty of the world around? Yeah, absolutely. Do you mean a, a guy with a beard sitting on a cloud? Well, no, not not really, right? So I don't know what you mean by divine because you know this this tastes divine. You <laughs> know, yeah, I think uh, yes, things things taste divine. Um, but uh, I don't, so I, now we'd have to move to the next definition, right? Well, it's like a larger intention and will from that animates everything. Like, do you think we just popped out of the soil one day? Wait a minute, like, animates everything. Now aren't we in Star Wars territory? <laughs> I mean, are we talking about the pardon? force? What do you mean? Sure. Yeah. We are. All that. All right. I mean, I think we all have a sense of it in some regard, and I don't think that there would be so many people leaning towards that and having so many sort of sketchy people rushing to fill that gap um, that feels absent. So I think that it is that desire for uh, transcendence and communion is inherent in people uh, at a certain point in their evolution you know and the growth of their soul and the the building of their character you know and when you start to peek beyond the veil and you start to see bigger patterns and you see that perhaps you know the the objects themselves are just sort of a garment for patterns that have come into being from from an energetic place that is far greater than we are, you know, as individuals, not to diminish the exercise in individuality. I think that obviously it's super important. It's why we're here. So it's not a, you know, an escape, an escape route or a reason to. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, cause you, you understand, like it's annoying. I've got to tell you what you're doing is annoying because I'm telling you I don't understand and you keep using these word salads and what you keep doing, Jaina, is you keep firing more and more word salads at me without stopping to ask if I know what the hell you're talking about. That's kind of rude. 
I mean, I thought that mysticism was supposed to make you sensitive to the patterns of oneness in the universe and so on. Do you not know that I keep asking you for definitions and clarity and you keep just handing me more and more word salads without ever stopping to ask whether or not I have any clue what you're talking about? When I've already told you three times or four times, I don't know what you're talking about. But you just keep talking and talking without asking me. Do, do you, do, am, I, am I present in the conversation to you at all? Is, are my needs present to you? Or is it just your needs? Like you just want to say this stuff. And it doesn't matter whether I understand it. It doesn't matter whether I comprehend what the hell you're talking about. You just want to get on my show and bleh, you just want to say all of this stuff. And it doesn't matter whether I understand it or not. Where's the sensitivity that the spirituality is supposed to give you to the other person in the conversation? Well, I'm sorry. That wasn't my, I thought, I was just trying to clarify something for you. But you don't you need to stop and ask if I'm understanding what you're saying? Like, you've, you've heard me in this show a million times say, you know, this is my argument. Does it make any sense to you? Are you following? Does right? I don't, I feel I don't even, like, you just be speaking to a candle here, right? I mean, like, I don't know where I am in the conversation when I keep telling you I don't know what you're talking about and I need clear definitions, and you just give me more, bleh, more syllables without ever asking if I know what you're talking about. Do I need to be here? I mean, do you want to just have a speech and I'll move on to the next caller? Because I feel like I'm not here, and I feel like you've embedded yourself so much in this otherness that it's eclipsing actual human beings that you're theoretically trying to have a conversation with, if that makes any sense. I don't know what to say. Good. That's a step forward, because before you did know what to say, but I didn't have any idea what you were saying. So, excellent. <laughs> I feel we're making progress. So, you're talking sort of platonic forms. You, you say the thing in itself or the thing behind the veil and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you know when you have achieved a comprehension of this otherness? Is it a feeling? Does it give you any thoughts that are reproducible in objective terms? Or is it a purely subjective experience that is united with an ultimate reality in your mind? It's how I make art, you know? And you you have... I, I, you have ideas flow into you and, and they, they're very visual and I translate them into drawings and books. Oh, is that, is that your job? Yeah. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, I have ideas and arguments and novels and poems and so on without that. So, I mean, that may be your artistic process, but it's not any definition of an objective artistic process. Well, the, right? well, and then, and then I feel then um, after I've had an experience like that, then you, you begin to refine it. So it's sort of like receiving and like an output, if you will, you know, for like input output. And you just sort of allow things to come into you when you're in a, a state of, of, purity of mind, I would suppose, like as best as I can achieve at this juncture in my life. And, um, and then translating it and refining it. And so then you apply intellect to it without a discrediting, but rather like a great appreciation of the mystical experience. 
and sometimes um and how sorry to interrupt but how do you because i'm still i i have a feeling that if i if i don't interrupt you're just going to keep talking um because you haven't listened to what i said earlier because maybe you're you're dealing with the ultimate staff rather than the staff who's actually on the line but um how um how do you access these mystical experiences do you not eat do you eat too much do you drink do you use drugs do you meditate i mean how do you get access to this uh, experience i i they, it just comes like if i'm driving driving is a really good way to be in the, the zone i guess um walking through the woods i live right by the at the edge of the woods and go walk through the forest a lot and sometimes you know um just traveling moving about i find there's a lot of receptivity when you sort of leave the house and get moving you i'm sure you know because sometimes i can hear you comment on the fact that you're active and moving about and doing stuff um and and things come in and then my the job of my intellect, I would feel, would be to translate that into something valuable. And so that would be insight, you know, versus um, uh, sculpting or carving consciously. And, you know, do you understand that? Well, again, you're using a description of a subjective experience for you. So have you ever used uh, drugs in the past to attempt to induce this state of mind? No, I don't. I don't use drugs, and I, I'm like, I like to have my wits about me. Right. Right. Okay. So, do you feel that I lack creativity or inspiration no. as a result of not uh, of being skeptical towards mysticism? No, uh, but sometimes I there's just sort of a dismissal of it. Well, sure, and but I mean, if if. If I have, I mean, I think I have an extraordinarily fertile mind. Um, I, some people I, would say I, I, that that's added to with manure, which is fine. <laughs> I understand the perspective. That's what? Added with manure, it's part of the fertility, okay. uh, but fecundity. But um, I have a very sort of creative and fertile mind. And the challenge for me is, is taking the creativity and fertility of my thoughts and arranging them in a way that is communicable and transferable to other people, right? Exactly. Right. So um, that to me is the challenge, right? So like this morning, let me tell you about my morning. So I was working a little bit late last night, and then I was hoping to sleep in a little bit this morning. But um, someone called at 7.40 a.m. this morning. and like, oh, you've got kids. I figured you'd be up. It's like, well, no, we're not not an early morning family exactly. And um, I tried to get a little bit more sleep, but I couldn't. And my mind sort of started churning, and I ended up recording two uh, two shows two conversations this morning. Um, and uh, it was a sort of very fertile. So for me, having the insight or having the idea, one was an analogy about an affair, trying to explain the Democrats' relationship with Russia. And um, I, anyway, so I had um, a lot of creativity this morning, as I generally do in the day. And, you know, when I did my um, April Fool's video, <laughs> I guess, spoiler, um, I, I just had the idea and wrote down a couple of thoughts and just went and recorded it. It was one take. Other stuff takes forever. Uh, even the one this morning, I like 
eight, eight or nine takes before I got it right. But sometimes it just happens, right? But the, the challenge for me is to translate a subjective inspiration into something which can transfer to other people. And so far, the only thing you've transferred to me is a lot of syllables and confusion because I still don't know what you're talking about. So well, maybe what, hang on, hang on. So maybe what mm-hmm. you could do, since what I do is translate my subjective inspiration into an objective form of communication, philosophy or analogies or whatever you want to call it, and sometimes storytelling. Maybe, Jane, what you could do is you could tell me an insight that you could transfer to me that you got from a mystical experience, something that would be of a benefit or value to me that you could communicate. Not the experience itself, like I was walking through the woods and I had this sense of awe and wonder or whatever, right? But no, no. something that is transferable, because you say you sort of write stories. So you translate the insights of mysticism into language, which is transferable to other people. So maybe you could help me understand the benefit of that. So you could transfer well, something to me. Well, like yesterday, I was just I was just driving home and had like, 30 minute drive and I just had an insight about paradox and and that and selfishness versus altruism for instance let's use that and um, and that the sort of right-headed true-hearted selfish person is by nature altruistic pretty much like they they're they they get pleasure out of making the world a better place and being of service of some kind that enriches their community and stuff and the people growing in that community. And so Wait, rather sorry, the than, selfish person is, enri- is interested in enriching his community? I think so. I think somebody who is, is true-hearted and has a, a, a really good understanding of the world likes to be likes to create value, and that value um, it makes the world a better place and actually contributes. It's like an individual. Like if you are an individual, that's a really strong example to set for the people who who come into contact with you. And if you share stuff that is enlightening and helps create people who as individuals to create the the you know the philosophical infrastructure for that and within their minds and stuff that that that's just they they kind of fuse together and sort of you know so when you collapse these seemingly paradoxes rather than having them pitted against each other all the time um i think you know and being so uh, binary or one or the other and and when we make them sort of both true and sort of collapse them into each other, they 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 become something, you know, unified and balanced in the middle. So, sorry, what, what are the two things you're collapsing together that seem to be opposite? The paradox, like altruism and selfishness. And if you decide to be one or you decide to be the other, but without wisdom, um, you're, they're, they're their own pursuits one pitted against the the other but if there's some wisdom and you know um insight and true heartedness to it they actually you know it's like i live you know i write books and they are um they're for kids but i'm i'm basically started doing them to console the frustration i felt as a child you know and really 
like, yeah, sure, there were cute books around, but they were largely inane, you know? And I was like, well, where's the stuff that's actually going to teach me just how to be in the world, you know? And so that's what I do. And uh, so, yeah, and I just noticed how when we follow our individual path and our impulse, it's quite, if it's true, if it's, you know, and feels not forced into some other rut of, or some other trajectory that was by virtue of conditioning, then it it does contribute to the world and it is altruistic in its own way. They become sort of the same thing. That was just a, okay. So so that. somebody who's selfish, let's say he's a a thief, right? So he breaks into mm-hmm. people's houses and he steals their stuff. That would be a selfish action because it's pursuing yeah. your own material pleasures at the expense yeah. of other people. How is that contributing to the community? Selling them alarms. How does that well, that's what I was saying. Selfishness, when, when it's in, in a, from a place of wisdom and true-heartedness, ultimately, when it's purified to that form, selfishness is actually altruistic. I'm not saying that, you know, a pedophile hiding in the bushes waiting to flash, you know, kids walking home from school, because that's how he gets his jollies, is, is um, serving the world. I'm saying when we you know, work on ourselves and we, you know, restore some, some balanced and sound architecture to our character. And we have a certain degree of wisdom that ultimately we notice those two things creeping towards each other. And, um, and so those individualistic impulses, you know, when they are rooted in, in virtue, they, it, it, they naturally becomes altruistic at the same time. So when you say, and I just, this is, this is the kind of stuff, like I don't, I don't know what, what the hell you're talking about, right? So when you say, when you restore some balanced and sound architecture to your character, mm-hmm. or when we restore right. some balanced and sound architecture to our character, you understand I don't know what that means, and I don't know how to achieve that, I don't know how to pursue that, I don't know if I've succeeded in doing that or failed in doing that, I don't know any objective definition, still talking, I don't know any objective definition of that, and if you listen back to what you're saying, Jaina, again, each word, yeah, I, I understand what each word, but to put them all together, I have no idea what you're talking about, in terms of like, I asked you to transfer something to me, and you said, well, there's behaviors that are traditionally good, I assume something like altruism, and I'm paraphrasing, there are, tra- there are behaviors that are traditionally bad, like selfishness. But if you're selfish in a virtuous way, it's virtuous. But that's, again, this is, doesn't add anything. I mean, okay, I'm selfish in a virtuous way. The question is, what is virtue? What is selfishness? What is altruism? No definitions are given. Just words are arranged in a seemingly pleasant manner that convey no actual objective or actionable meaning. How do I restore some balance and sound architecture to my character? What does that mean? I think you do that through philosophy. That's not, you're just using more words. You know, I mean, how do I actually do that? Well, this is a word show. Right. But I the mean, words have to have some meaning. Saying you do it through philosophy doesn't answer anything. Because if I say, okay, this morning I'm going to get up and do philosophy, what does that mean? How do I know if I've done it? How do I know if I've succeeded or failed? Well, we build it through philosophy, through thinking, like, 
right thinking. Right thinking is just another behavior. way of saying philosophy. I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but you see, you're just making positive sounding noises with your breathing hole. You're not actually telling me what I need to do. That's actionable. That's comprehensible. It's just these are positive adjectives that are masquerading as self-knowledge. What do I do to restore some balance and sound architecture to my character? You live by your principles. That's another way of saying philosophy. What are the principles? How do I know if I've lived by them? How are they objectively validated? You create value. Like you create something for the world. You contribute. Again, more adjectives that sound positive, but I still don't know. What do I contribute to the world? How do I know if it's positive? What if other people are upset by a truth that I brought to bear? How do I know whether it's validated? How do I know whether I've succeeded or failed? You see, you just keep piling positive adjectives off and think you're communicating something. Because, you you know, I assume you're trying to make a case for mysticism to somebody, yeah, I guess you describe me, would describe me as a rationalist or, or you know. Yeah, I just, I, I'm not making a case for it in the sense of, of, of being superior. I'm no, just necessary. As necessary and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater necessarily. Again, that's just another analogy we, which has no content to it. Because I still don't know it, well, what you, I still don't know what you're trying to I still don't know what you're trying to add to my human experience other than a, a bunch of fairly random positive adjectives. I don't know what you're trying to you're saying, Steph, well if you had the yin to the yang, if you had this to that, you wouldn't die alone with a dick in your hand. Okay, well let's assume that I don't want to die alone with a dick in my hand. What do I do? And I don't know, like chewing a bunch of positive adjectives doesn't seem to be relieving the headache of what is missing from my life. And maybe, just, maybe, maybe you have something very positive to offer and, you know, maybe we can talk again. But right now, um, if you're telling me I'm missing something, but you're not able to define what it is that I'm missing and you're not able to give me anything actionable uh, in order I'm to pursue. I'm not telling you anything. Oh, okay. I, I, then I'm going to move question. on to the. No, I'm then just going to move on to the next caller then, because if you're not telling me anything, which I actually think is a very accurate description, then I don't want to waste the listener's time with someone who doesn't have anything to communicate. So thanks for calling in. Let's move on to the next caller. All right. Well, up next we have Colleen, and Colleen wrote in a letter after having a strong reaction to one of the videos that Steph did on single moms. And Colleen, would you like to read the letter that you wrote in, and then the conversation can ensue from there. Hello. Hi, Colleen. And, uh, How you doing? Great. It's great to be on your show. Thank you. <laughs> a very great pleasure to chat with you. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have. It's quite a letter, so I'll I'll just start reading. Yeah. Here. Take your time. Don't rush. Okay. I'm a little nervous. So <laughs> you had such a great list of um, of people on. I, I really had a good time listening so far. So yeah. <clears throat> anyway. Um, Dear Mr. Molino, this is what it says. I love what you have to say, and I truly apologize for disliking a video that you posted. 15 re reasons to date a single mom. I put a comment there, too, just to explain, as I, rarely pushed, as I have rarely pushed that button. I have learned so much from your postings just by listening instead of letting titles tick me off. <laughs> your channel has some of the best listens I have ever forced myself into until I listened to the single mom bashing. I cried myself to sleep over just being a single mother. 
and have never been so emotionally beat into a box. Being that I rarely dislike things, I usually discern the sides very deeply and therefore cannot thank you enough for all that I have learned from the videos that I really liked, although it hurt listening to, uh, to them, only because I saw how I was guilty. <laughs> I have two girls. Um, one is just a teenager and one who is eight. The eight-year-old lives with me and the other... I have to scroll down a little bit here. I'm reading off my email. One, just a teenager, one who is eight, the eight-year-old lives with me and the other with her father. Different dads, even. I definitely see my mistakes and am good friends with both fathers. I've been um, learning discernment. My parents divorced after my mom became a clone of my dad's complaints. <laughs> I've lived a lifetime of dating cheaters and I caused every one of them in one form or another. That's a whole other story, but um, I apologize too. long ago. I came across your video about um, the art move that Trump made. I had feelings about that because I'm sorry to interrupt. I, had, I just wanted to make sure people knew that this is regarding the funding to NPR and PDS, the, the PBS, the funding cuts, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have so much that, I mean, I, I just wanted to talk the entire time when you were talking, but I have so much, so many things that popped into my brain. But anyway, um, I had applied for so, for so many grants and been turned down for nasty art, dumbed down to its core, dry as toast in a desert since Tut's time. Your video was a godsend. So I watched a lot more and I'm, I'm a su subscriber and certainly will not stop investigating what you have to say. <laughs> However, a question came to mind. You are doing so much good for the world, for women and for a great job for men too. I did not realize the sabotage we carry when we do not provide the proper discernment in a relationship. And with anyone for that matter, in this day and age, everyone needs a good run over. <laughs> I believe we can come to an understanding, though. Instead of shoving each other into boxes, I, feel, I felt like the scum of the earth, that I should not even ever be allowed a relationship or happiness, for that matter, after that video, just for carrying the label of single mom. My question for you is to perhaps examine why there is a need to push all of, a, all of these categories that rip our souls into shreds when you have such a great history of good things to point out. In another video, a, a woman, typical single mom, college grad, theater major, looking for a husband, you guided her so well. But ooh, I could feel the typical mom, typical single mom bells going off in the air. It felt judgmental and felt strong. You didn't sound judgmental, so <laughs> um, perhaps it was coming from me. And these are questions that I'm that I'm uh, I have question marks after that. In other videos, you talk about your own life very courageously. I understand fully what happened to you as a kid. Could see it in my mind and feel it in my heart, and it made me sob. My mom dropped after the divorce, and I had to carry her. And I repeated everything, but I'm not that girl anymore. So there's lots of exceptions out there and we can help the women that are tied up in their selfish ways. 
I'm studying physics at a space tech, blah, space tech institute, and we actually talk about the gravitational energies of Earth that are female as being the taking or pulling energies. <laughs> the females in my class were pissed for a while, <laughs> but we are learning fascinating, but we are learning fascinating how life relates, really, everything relates. I'm helping with a new way to incorporate superconductive materials in art form to help balance the energies of the planet as well as provide free energy for all. This world, the world is changing rapidly around us, and because there are amazing people in the world like you, <laughs> we're making differences in people's lives. So although I had to disprove one of your many videos, I, one of the many videos I've seen of yours, I definitely hope that this letter shines as a true thank you and not a complaint. Perhaps you can correct me if I was wrong in thinking that this box for single moms is not impenetrable, but I have to push myself to the degree that I believe. We all deserve a chance. <clears throat> and I just said much respect and admiration for all that you're doing, Colleen. So that that's my letter. Well, thank you. I look. I, I first of all, I appreciate you being a subscriber. I appreciate you watching the show, and I appreciate you writing down your objections and you're upset with what I'm doing and calling in to talk about it. That's, um, you know, respect and, and thank you uh, for doing that. Sort of, first of all, is there anything that you, now, now that you've reread it, is there anything that you wanted to add to what you had uh, called in or the, to, to what you'd written about? Oh boy, there's lots of things that I would like to add. I mean, there were so many things that came up just with the callers before that were, were going on about, um, uh, the current events and just the different uh, corruption that's running through the healthcare systems and the—I mean, I took notes. I, I, <laughs> no, 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 but but your your stuff. Forget about the yeah. Forget about the other callers for now. Okay. Let's let's okay. focus on on anything you wanted to add to this the letter yes. that you'd sent in. Thank you. Sorry about that. My mind goes everywhere. At oh, some I, point, I know but... the feeling. Oh, I know the experience. <laughs> I can't communicate it, but anyway. yeah, I love your show. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just think that there, um, I, I believe that you're right about so many things. There, the reason that I find your show so interesting and I, and I just, I, it's, it's like a, um, it's like getting slapped in the face and coming back for more sometimes though. <laughs> well, as, <laughs> as I said earlier, uh, morality is not because, nice. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's the truth though, you know, and it, and it's something that, that we all have to face in a, in a, in a very adult manner because there are things happening in this world right now that we have got to face and there are children out there that are suffering because of it. And I, you know, I, firsthand, I know of, um, my professor who was, um, it, <laughs> He had so many. He had death threats. He he was given arsenic. He was threatened with his the pedof pedophile ring. I mean, just everything because of the concepts he was coming up in in science yeah. with. Your professor at the college. Yes, yes, yeah. These things are all going on. I mean, this is just you know these are the things that Alex Jones is talking about on his channel, and now I'm firsthand experiencing you know like these things in class. My classmates have been threatened. One of our classmates was killed over 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 the technologies that we're bringing out. They're amazing technologies. Murdered? Killed? Murdered? Murdered? Yes, murdered. Oh yeah. How how do you know? 
Like what happened? Well, what happened was he was in a he was in a car accident. But the he had, when he left, he was on one side of the car. When they found him, he was on the other. So there was just there were there were um, circumstances around the accident. That's all that I know. That's all that we had heard in class. But um, there there have been uh, I know of so many different reports. Basically. Stefan, I've 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 delved myself into this because I I was like, I'm a mom. <laughs> I have kids that are on this planet that I love deeply, and I love the kids they play with, and I love all all people, you know. And I think that this world deserves a chance. And there's something out there that is just taking over everything, and it's the 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 concept that that someone can control who we are. And the, the, the absolute value in each person as being an individual, but also joining hands, also discovering that we have so many similarities, that we do desire one thing, that we do desire to have a peaceful planet, have a place where our kids can go outside and play again and not have to worry about where they are because, you know, gosh darn it, it's a safe world to live in. When I grew up, that's how we, that's how we grew up. My mom never worried about where we were. We ran around on a golf course all over the place, and she rang a dinner bell, and we came home. <laughs> you know, and that, those days are gone. Where did they go? Those are the family values that we have to bring back. And these things have been hidden in so many ways that it is astronomical. We study everything from quantum physics all the way to astrophysics in the university that I'm at. And then we study the correlation between them all. So we get down to the very elements, the chemical balances of the brain, the biological aspects and where it connects to in, in the centers of the brain. And the, the things that I'm working on right now are tying them to art and um, delving into bringing in they're like superconductive materials into the art that can actually heal the environment around us. And so I'm can I just uh, sorry to interrupt. Um can I ask what, um, when you said that uh, your mother fell down after the divorce and you had to carry her, what do you mean by that? Well, what happened was she, she, she's a, an amazing woman. I, I love her so much. She, um, she felt horrible. She felt guilty because she had made a commitment with my father and that commitment was holding her. It wasn't, you know, and, and their relationship had fallen apart because he was, he was searching out different religions. She was sticking to one thing. She had kind of changed her own personality to fit his because he would, he would complain about her not, uh, probably not being herself because women tend to lose themselves. They just fall into place. They tend to get uh, complacent sometimes. And she had that complacency to where she fell into a niche. Hang on. I I don't know that you want to extrapolate your mom or yourself necessarily to all women. But, yeah, there are certainly some men and women who who do that. They they pour themselves into relationships or to more dominant personalities like water into a container. They take that shape, but they don't have the satisfaction of their own shape. Yes. Yeah. And this can happen to anybody. You're right. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That can't happen to anybody. uh, But it happened to your mom. Yes. 
Yeah. So, you know, like I could, I could see those things happening to her and I could feel her just withdrawing and she withdrew for, for a long time and didn't really get out and do things. But eventually, you know, so I, so I, um, she would come to me and talk to me all the time about these things, you know, and she, she just was, was sinking and I could feel her Wait, sinking. So how, how old were you when your parents split up? Oh, I was about 12. Cool. And your mother would burden you with what her angst, her depression, her existential identity issues. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's an and appropriate it, thing to do with a 12 year old? Well, uh, it worked. I mean, I, I, um, I did my no, no, best. I did not, no, I did not. No, hang on. Hang on. I didn't ask if it worked. I asked if you thought it was an appropriate thing to burden a 12-year-old with who's also gone through the split up of a family. Well, here's the thing about that. I do in a way because um, my mind was questioning why all this stuff was going on, why everything was happening. And when you when you don't talk to your children when you just be when you just shut it behind doors they can feel all that angst anyway so when you when you go to your kids and you talk to them i think that that's a better better relationship and so you do this with your kids too if you're having challenges or emotional problems or whatever you'll talk to them about it? no not everything obviously no i, I mean you come to them in a way that is um you know, you, you've got to, basically, you've got to stop and take a breath. You can't come to them just all emotionally distraught and, and you know, bleeding out of your eyes. And, and you, you know, you've got to gather yourself and gather your emotions and, and come to them with what the best, you know, what you get, gather both sides of the, the argument there so that you have something to present to them so that they can make the decision on whatever you're dealing with. Right. Right. Okay. And how are your kids doing, Colleen? Uh, they're doing great. My my uh, teenager is in medical. Uh, she's she's doing. She's got straight A's in school. She's get, getting the medical studies right now, and she's fifteen. And then my eight year old is also taking. Uh, she's taking physics courses <laughs> with with me at the university, and then she's getting into horseback riding. But, you know, like, I, I want to stress this point. I was not, um, here's what happened to me. I, I was, I was in the art, I was fully into my career. Okay. As an artist, I missed my kids' birthdays. I missed, um, oh, I missed so much. I just missed so much. I mean, I, I fell into a, a, a trap. Um, I, I, was guilty of so many things that I, I drank too much at, at certain points in my life. Um, there were, there were times when, you know, I just was not, was not a great mom. But, um, so, so seeing all the videos that you're putting out there for the world, I think that these are so important. They raise the hairs on the back of our necks. These ones for me, you know, and I, I, I want, all these women out there who, ooh, the hairs are raising on the back of, of my neck. <laughs> That's because you're guilty, you know, because <laughs> you've got to go back and you've got to look at these things and you've got to weigh these things and say, oh, my gosh, you know what? I've got to spend more time with my kids. I've got to get out there and I've got to have fun. I've got to do all the things that, you know, I keep preaching to the 
Yeah, I, you know, and it's it, it's a self realization, which is what your last caller I think was was trying to get to was that that self realization. It, it's not necessarily a selfish thing. I would I would call it a self realization is just saying, oh my gosh, I've got to get out there and be more. Um, more self-reliant on my own personality and my own gut feel and what I love to do, the kid inside me and, and the, the things that okay, I, sorry, you, sorry, okay, sorry. I just, um, I need to be part of the conversation uh, as well. Okay. Um, so sorry. Colleen, uh, just help me understand. And I'm just trying to follow. I'm not obviously saying you're saying anything wrong, but I'm just trying to sort of follow. So you have two kids by two different fathers. Did they both cheat on you? Yes. Right. So you had two kids by two different fathers who both cheated on you. Yes. You are a child of a broken home yourself. You were a workaholic. Yep. You missed birthdays. You drank too much at certain points in your life, but your kids are perfectly fine. Yeah. You understand that's a little hard to follow. I'm not saying you're well, wrong. I'm just, that's. Yeah. No, no, it, it's it's a, um, bit, a bit disconcerting when you keep laughing about what is problematic parenting, right? Oh, no, 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 no. I, 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 don't, mean, I, I don't mean to laugh that off at all. No. No, we've been through a lot together. You know, like there's there have been um, a lot of conversations. The, life, life isn't perfect. You know, we all have um, things that we go through. And there are a lot of single moms out there. Step in that that need need to have some hope, that need to have some some direction, and I think that by facing these these details that you're bringing up, you know, like yes, I I did these things. These things are that they, they were moments in my life that I'm I'm not proud of, but I did the best of my ability when I when I was in the circumstances that I was in, and I I. I I, um, you know, like you have to go through every single circumstance and I don't think you have time for that at all on any show, but, um, there's, there's, uh, I, I wrote a book. I actually have a book. Out oh, but there. Hang on, hang on. So, so Colleen, if your kids are doing perfectly well and you did the best you could, yes, nothing was wrong with your kids' childhoods, nothing affected them negatively, no decisions you made or the decisions that their fathers made, then why did you cry after my video? Uh, you know, because of... I think the biggest reason that I cried was just because I felt like um, the, the information that you had spread about just the stigmatism of being a single mom was so um, one-sided that it, it really just stuck me in a box that I had no room to get out of. Why? You know, why, I, why? I, I mean, if, if your kids are doing well and you did the best parenting that you could possibly have done, then why would you put yourself in that category? Like, I mean, if, if I say smoking is bad for you and you're a 90-year-old smoker in reasonably good health, you wouldn't suddenly fall down and die, right? You, just, you wouldn't be in that category. So the question is, why would you cry no, if I, you did everything right to the best of your ability and your kids are doing fine? I guess I just identified with a lot of the things that you were saying, the, the bad decision making, because, you know, like it, it, in all truth, 
I made a bad decision about their fathers, but at the time being, I really thought that I'd made a good decision about who I was with. But did you pursue any particular form of self-knowledge? I mean, you came from, I mean, you're a highly intelligent woman. If you're creating free energy for everyone, then you're a highly intelligent woman who's studying physics. So you would know, right, that self-knowledge is important, that there are patterns that repeat uh, in, in families. And if you come from a dysfunctional family, then you need to really pursue self-knowledge. I'm, I'm a big fan of talk therapy, but there are other ways of, of doing it if, if money is an issue. So having come from a dysfunctional family background yourself, did you pursue self-knowledge prior to choosing the bad fathers or not? Knowing that that's generally, you know, Freud has been around for like 130 or 140 years. Uh, and not that, you know, it has to be Freudian or anything, but that idea that yeah. there are patterns in childhood has an effect, right? In Wordsworth, the child is the father of the man. So did you pursue self-knowledge prior to becoming a mother by two different fathers? I I woke up pursuing self-knowledge. <laughs> I, I just say, I love, I love delving into philosophies. I love delving into just every sort of, Everything out there that's that, that that's uh, no no you know, no because no, it, no that's too abstract. Sorry to interrupt again, but what okay. I mean is that given that your parents broke up, uh-huh. then you knew that you were at risk for potential dysfunction in your relationships. So what did you do with regards to your own personal history prior to having children, two kids by two fathers, and them both cheating on you? Did your father cheat on your mother? Is that right? Yes. Okay, so you have a pattern, which is not that complicated to figure out, which is that your mother chose a cheater. You think your mother's a wonderful woman, therefore you're going to make decisions similar to her, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever we praise, we become. Whatever we praise, we inhabit over time. So given that Mm -hmm. your father cheated on your mother and it broke up the relationship, and then the fact that you had two different fathers for your children who both cheated on you, like your father cheated on your mother, would seem to me to indicate that you did not very vigorously pursue self-knowledge with the goal of breaking the patterns that were in your childhood demonstrated by your parents. No, obviously not. Okay. Not in those circumstances. Okay, so you didn't do, yeah. the, you didn't do the very best you could have done. And, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. We need no, to be no, honest no. with each other, right? I mean, there are things in my life I certainly uh, yes. didn't do the very best that I could have. Uh, so when you said I did the very best that I could have as a parent, um, you didn't. I mean, we, n- none of us do, right? None of us do. Uh, but yes, but yes. You, you gave me this statement like, well, I did the very best yes. I could, but that's not true because you did not pursue the kind of self-knowledge that would have helped you avoid choosing cheaters like your mom did. Uh, it, no, no, I didn't. Okay, so maybe was- that's why there's this disconnect when your kids, you say your kids are doing fine, you did the very best you could, even though you drank too much, missed birthdays, you're a workaholic and two different fathers for your kids and so on. And, you know, they cheated on you, so you chose yourself and not quality fathers in terms of sticking around. Obviously, if your kids are doing well, you probably chose some good brain genes or whatever. So this disconnect where you say to me, well, I did the very best that I could, and then I point out that empirically you didn't, and then you say, well, that's true. Maybe that disconnect between what you're telling me about how well you did and what you kind of maybe know deep down about the mistakes you made, maybe that had to do with the tears. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I knew I'd made mistakes. I knew I'd... But you just told me you you did the very best you could, right? Given the circumstances, yes. No, no, I mean, no, no. It, that's passive. That's passive. That's saying the circumstances determine your choices. <laughs> no. 
You could have chosen better. The information is culturally available. Dr. Phil is the biggest show on daytime television. Self-knowledge is one of the biggest sections in a bookstore, and it's a huge section on Amazon, and it's a huge section on your Kindle. Self-knowledge has been known as a way of breaking patterns. You did not pursue self-knowledge to the point, to the degree that you could choose better men, better husbands, and better fathers for your children prior to having that, right? No, this is not something that just happened to you. There is active choice in avoiding self-knowledge in order to reproduce a pattern, right? I mean, I'm giving you the, 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 res- the respect of saying that you had a choice in the matter and you chose to avoid self-knowledge, which produced some of the disastrous uh, of your family life in that you have right, these two different dads. Yes. Okay. Um, maybe that's yeah. part of the tears that were occurring for you that I'm saying, like, I will always give people, I mean, and I will always give people the, the benefit and the curse of, of free will. And I don't believe that everyone always does the very best they can with the knowledge they have. Of course not. Because we can always choose to expand our knowledge. Uh, you're definitely intelligent enough to know that there are patterns in families. And you reproduce the pattern of your mother's relationship in that you chose a man who cheated on you. And either you left him or he left you. And this happened twice. Twice. So you had the example of your father. You had the example of the father of your first child. And then you had the example of the father of your second child. That is not a very high learning curve. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. That's and you're why smart enough I to you're smart, smart enough, enough to learn better, right? Oh yes, okay. absolutely. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page, definitely. But um, that <laughs> that's so. Um, sorry to interrupt you. So you said to me that you did the best you could, and it turns out that's not the case. So now I have to ask you again: How are your children doing? My children are doing they, again. They're doing. They're doing very well. I, I really can't say anything. Now you gave me their academics. How about their personalities? How about their life choices? How about their happiness? How about their stability? How about their bond? I mean, one I doesn't. One doesn't live with you, right? No, no. But we talk a lot. We talk a lot on uh, Skype and on the phone, and so as much as we can. And how are they so, doing emotionally? I, I, yeah, I can say that they're doing really well. I mean, I, I, I really uh, I spend as much time as I can. Um, and and it, that's, a, that's as much time as I can. I mean, it's, um, I, I, I have a full schedule as, as a full-time student, and um, I'm working as well, so... Um, luckily, I can kind of work during class while it's while they're speaking. I paint, so so basically, um, you have like two full time jobs, right? Yeah. yeah. And your eight year old lives with you. Is that right? Yes. So you're not very available to her. Why are you uh, going? Well, why are you going back to school when your daughter is at home and needs a parent? So that I can. Um, well. <laughs> That's a long story. There's a lot that's going along with that. Um, I have a, I, I have a desire to help the um, the planet and what's going on right now. And so, I know, and but I, you have I, an eight year old daughter who's home, and you've got a full time job, and you've got full time studies which come with homework and exams and and reports and all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, how is the planet as an abstract more immediate to your preferences? I mean, who, who's taking care of your daughter? I am. 
No, we're gonna if you're s- working full time and, and you're at school full time, you don't really have much time, right? I go to school from one o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock in the morning. And then she goes to school. And when she's in school, I sleep. And then when she gets home from school, we spend time together until she goes to sleep. And then we get. But when do you work? Uh, during class right now is what is the way that I'm working it out. And there's there's a couple of other. Um, right now, I'm looking for a, a job <laughs> because I, I need a little bit more work so i've been working on some um different ideas with that but i've been okay, applying but Colleen, if, if your if your daughter if your daughter had a magic wand would she choose for you to work and have a f- and go to school when she's eight or do you think she would choose to have you more available to her if she had a magic wand she'd ha- she'd have me available to her all the time. Good. Okay, good. So why why is the world's <laughs> needs so important and your daughter's needs not so much? I need a job. I need to be able to pay for her to live as well. So I'm the sole provider. So I'm I But if you're going to school, that costs you money, right? And it costs you time no, that otherwise you not- could be working. <laughs> school is $100 a um, year. So it's not really costing me anything. Wait, you go to a school where the students get murdered, the teacher gets death threats, you're supplying energy to all human beings and it costs $100 a year? Yes. Yeah. And it's it, one of the most amazing universities I've ever seen in my life. And it's, it's um, they have free teachings online. They have free workshops and it's just um they've started something over in ghana right now where they're curing um they've they've got test results curing malaria hiv and cancer with an injection you understand this sounds crazy right yeah absolutely i think it might sound crazy but there no 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 it sounds crazy right that they're providing (laughs) free energy for everyone they're curing cancer they're curing malaria they're curing aids and it costs a hundred dollars a year these things have gone on behind closed doors for a long time. There are secret um, patents that haven't been put out. There have been people killed over this stuff for centuries. These these things have been hidden from, from us forever. You've got to know that. No, I think I, everyone I really don't have to that. know that. I really don't have to know that. Yeah, but it's true. And is, there any, is there anyone in your life who expresses skepticism about some of the stuff that you say you're doing? They have, and they don't anymore, because they've seen what it's what it's been doing, and they've seen some of the. the we've got so many um, testimonies uh, about people who've been cured from so many different things. It is just crazy. Alzheimer's, you name it. Wait, there's a universal it's, cure to just about any ailment in the hundred dollar a year university. Okay, all right. Yeah. All yep. Right. Absolutely. And yes, this does sound crazy. I realize that, but it, it's absolutely true. And if you can go and check it out, it's Spaceship Institute. The Spaceship Institute? Yes. You're, okay. You're not trolling me, right? I am not. <laughs> okay, just just checking. I'm an, you know, I'm an artist. Just... I'm an artist by trade. Right. I've done this all my life. I got into this because I saw a video about something that, 
um, had intrigued me because I w- I'd looked into quantum phys- physics and I was interested in, in the energies and what they were doing. And I had, I had some questions in my mind about how they worked. So um, I wanted to take some science classes and these were available at a, a very reasonable price. At that time, they were $1,000 a year, but they've gone down to $100 a year. So it's a, it's a, it's a commitment, but there are, they, they, the classes are done in a way that it's an open forum. So we have instructors that come in from, um, we've got some of the most amazing instructors from uh, the university of, uh, over in San Francisco um, in the agriculture department. It's just some of the most amazing scientists have come together and we're all together 40 hours a week studying to help to make the planet a better place. And all of this um, <laughs> is completely and totally available to the public right now. We have this available right now at our fingertips. And the people who are trying to put this aside and not let it be known to the public would much rather that this information not get out. That's why we've had all the death threats and all the different things that have happened within the world of scientists. It's not just my university. It's all over the place. All right. Well, listen, I I don't want to make this uh, into a conversation about about that. So I'll I'll just close off with a little, little speech about your initial question. Listen, my concern is for the children. My concern is for the children. I actually, and I've expressed this before, I feel some significant sympathy for single moms, women who end up as single moms, because they're not really being told the truth about the negative effects that single motherhood has on children. Uh, and, And that is my particular concern. I mean, adults make choices, and I think adults should be responsible for the effects of those choices. But children don't make choices. Children are just born into particular environments. Now, we are told of the dangers of smoking. We're told of the dangers of excessive drinking. We're told of the dangers of obesity and other things. This doesn't mean that every smoker dies young, and this doesn't mean that every child of every single mother is doomed to a life of disaster. I mean, I'm the child of a single mother, and I'm not, although it was a hell of a lot of work to uh, to uh, undo the damage and recover from from the history. So my particular concern is with the children, and I do feel some sympathy for um, single moms who become single moms without being told the basics. This should be taught in health class, right, the negative effects, particularly on sons. I mean, maybe it's different, of course, you have daughters. So the negative effects uh, for sons being raised by single moms. I mean, uh, some, some of my friends were raised by uh, single moms when I was growing up, uh, particularly in my sort of early teens, and um, I just did a show, which I haven't released yet, about about one of them. And their lives were disastrous. Disastrous. And agonizingly so. And again, that's part of a bell curve, and it's not everyone necessarily all the time, although it is necessarily deficient. Single moms, like single dads, have half the parenting resources available, are tired, or stressed, or scared, uh, being the sole provider, and, and so on. And I think that stress wears uh, people down, and I think can make them a little... Um, erratic. And so I think that it would be fair to young people, to to teenagers, you know, single motherhood is a sexually transmitted 
disorder, so to speak, and it affects single moms in negative ways, anxiety, depression. It affects their children, particularly their sons, in highly uh, negative ways. And we've got the truth about single motherhood as a presentation for people who want more facts and more data about this. So the fact that this information is withheld from young people, that becoming a single mother is going to, in general, be very bad for your children, and in particular for your sons, well, they should be made aware of this. But of course, the lefty educational system doesn't want to teach women about the perils of single motherhood because they rely on the single mother vote to stay in power, right? So, I mean, that's just... And and they want to make sure women don't get married because when women get married, they want smaller government. When women are single, and particularly single moms, they want bigger government. So it's just part of the whole globalist agenda to uh, keep single moms in the pipeline and keep women from getting married and having kids in stable relationships because then they're dependent. They marry the state and always want the state to be bigger. There's no big movement called single moms against the national debt, right? I mean, it wouldn't make any fundamental sense from a self-interest standpoint. So I am concerned about facts getting out. And if I have to be uh, emphatic or forceful to get the facts out, well, um, it's worth it to me because what I want is for people to understand the risk factors involved in single motherhoods so that they can... So single moms don't just sit there and say, well, I guess I was just a bad parent. You know, pointing out the negative outcomes of single mother uh, families is a way of, first of all, hopefully there's some way to ameliorate it, which is not my job. My job is to point out the issues. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social scientist. I you know, can't conduct big studies and figure out best ways to alleviate um, mental health issues or family dysfunction issues. But you know, the first step is admitting there's a problem. So it helps, I think, single moms to just not feel that the family outcomes are incomprehensibly bad. There are very specific things. And it, hopefully it helps the next generation to recognize that it's a negative social environment and familial environment for most kids and particularly for boys as I said so that they can avoid that kind of stuff and if they want to have kids you know hopefully have them young uh, have a lot if they want them and and have a stable relationship with a good providing man and and have all of that protection and security and and satisfaction that comes from all of that so yeah I'm sorry that it was painful for you but um, it is a truth that needs to be out there so people can make better decisions and if it does turn out that your kids have some problems Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, You'll at least have some context that it's not random. And it doesn't just mean that you were a bad parent. A single mom who does the very best that she can is still statistically at a significant disadvantage over a married mom with a stable provider who's able to have that kind of security and that masculine presence in the lives of their uh, children. So, um, you know, cruel to be kind, get the message out and um, not pull any punches when it comes to talking about the data. That's been my approach. And if it hurts, you know, don't shoot the messenger, right? Get upset at all the people who withheld the facts about single motherhood from you, who withheld the statistics about single motherhood from you, which have been known for decades and are relentlessly and ruthlessly suppressed in the mainstream media. And it isn't the kind of alternative media. You get these kind of facts that can actually help you make a better life and make better decisions for yourself and for those around you. So I'm sorry that society has lied to women and to men about the perils of single motherhood. That's not my fault, but I am responsible for what I do once I get the right information. So thanks for calling in. Uh, I wish you the very best and let's move on to the final caller. All right, up next we have Sebastian. Sebastian wrote in and said, My family illegally emigrated from Mexico to the United States when I was six years old. At the age of 21, I decided to come back to my home country. Ignorant as I was of its culture, after concluding I would rather be free in my third world country than live a life of shame and illegality in someone else's. It has taken me nearly 10 years to accept 
and start to understand the shock and far-reaching consequences this transition had on my life and spirit. Far from integrating into this new culture, I recoiled from it and tried to maintain my American mindset and ideals. The issue I'm struggling with now is my newfound sympathy towards nationalist ideas and the tricky position it puts me in. I identify as neither American nor Mexican, but the hard fact of my citizenship leads me to conclude that I should fight in the interests of my homeland against the corruption of its leaders and the larger globalist agenda. That's from Sebastian. Oh, hey, Sebastian. How are you doing? Hi, Stefan. I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> Thanks. What a, what a fascinating story, and thank you so much for calling in to, to share it. Is there anything that you wanted to add to um, what you wrote? Um, yeah, well, just right, just before I do that, I just wanted to, uh, you know, thank you. I've been listening to you for, um, you know, over 10 years. So, right? On, wow. Yeah. Holy. On and off. How cool. On and wait, off. Wait, 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 wait. What was that last part? On and what? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, there, there have been periods when I haven't had a computer or a smartphone, so. All I, right. I mean, if you're lost on a desert island, you are forgiving for not taking your daily dose of the big chatty forehead. So, all right, good. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think you're the closest thing I've had to a father figure for for the longest time, and I really don't know where I'd be without you, so I do want to thank you. Uh, Maybe in America, but I appreciate it. It's very, very kind. And you know it's <laughs> funny? I mean, I've heard that sort of uh, the father figure reference, but because I still feel approximately 12, um, <laughs> it feels uh, cool. Uh, it feels cool. All right. So, yeah, is, is there anything else you wanted to add to before we, we, we dig in? Um, yeah, well, I mean, um, so, so, I mean, I, I, I feel like... Um, it's it's awful, you know. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, and I think immigration can have just such an awful effect upon uh, people. And I think that the biggest effect is that loss of a cultural identity. You know, mm. uh, um, I feel I, I do feel like that's something that's missing uh, in my life, um, uh, which may not be so important for everybody, but for me, uh, I really don't feel like I ever. Uh, fit in in the U.S. Uh, because I was an immigrant, uh, and I we immigrated when I was six. So, uh, you know, I was always kind of Well, awkward. sorry, I, technically you weren't an immigrant, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I was immigrated there. I didn't immigrate there. <laughs> no, no, but, but Im- immigration is usually considered a legal act, right? Oh, okay. Um, right. Yeah. Im- immigration is usually a process wherein you legally obtain residence uh, over time in, in a country, right? Illegal immigrant okay, yeah. is one of these, um, like like we, uh, somebody who's in a house without permission is a squatter or a home invader or something like that. But we wouldn't call them an, an illegal homeowner, right? And, and, and this is not to nag at you; it's just to nag at the phrase itself. Uh, an immigrant is immigrant is illegal, and I know this is. I was like you; I was carried over in a sense from England to Canada when I was eleven. So um, it is. Uh, you weren't an immigrant, right? You were. You were brought over, and you guys, your, your parents were were criminally occupying the United States, right? Right. Yes, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is no no disrespect to you, when right? You were six, right? Uh, and and right. the fact that you have a conscience and sensitivity about it is a, a very very positive sign. But um, what was it like as the child of illegal immigrants uh, for you? growing up? I mean, I assume that you went to regular school and all that kind of stuff, but what was all that like? Um, well, I, um, 
Obviously, when I was young, uh, quite young, I, I didn't really have any uh, sort of cognizance of it. I um, I wasn't really aware of it. I guess I probably began began to 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 really uh, become aware of that um, when I uh, was probably around fourteen or fifteen. Um, you know, um, because I was rather different, and I didn't really grow up in um, you know with uh, maybe the right kind of parents or the kind the right kind of uh, guidance or whatever. Um, I maybe didn't realize because I didn't have that many friends as a child, right? Uh, were you I in a, sorry to interrupt, were you in an area, and of course we don't want to get anywhere specific, but were you in an area where there weren't a lot of other um, n- illegal no, there, people? Sorry, no, there were, there were, definitely there were. Uh, yeah, there were very many, uh, very many um, uh, Latino, especially uh, immigrants. Um, but sorry, there, I, there were, yeah. there were lots of others or weren't? I'm sorry if I missed that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, there were. There were. Okay. Now, I yeah. So, so why do you think that you weren't able? To, I mean, I have a theory, but I don't want to <laughs> tell you your own experience. Why do you think that you weren't able to sort of gather more of a social circle of friends? Um. Well, I guess the, there may be some um, some inherent uh, qualities. I mean, I'm I'm very much kind of a loner. I'm very uh, introspective. I think I have been since I was a child. Now. That may not be inherent. I mean, that, that may have a lot to do with my parents and my and my uh, the way that I was brought up. But um, yeah, I was always just very, very much a loner, uh, very much kept to myself, um, uh, even as a, as a child. You know, um, I've always been quite creative, uh, so I'm, I'm more of a, you know, um, much more of an introvert. Um, so, so maybe that. And do you have you any know, uh, do you have any thoughts as to why? Because you're kind of just describing the same thing over and over again that you were a loner. Oh, why? Um, okay, yeah. Um, I guess there was a lot of uh, sort of isolation in my uh, first years, in my formative years, um, in the sense that I have one sibling. I have a sister. She's six years older than I am, but she is deaf-mute, so there wasn't very much of a, of a connection there. Um, and, what, and she was that way from birth? Yes, she was, yes. Uh, so that and um, I guess... Just the, the the that change and just uh, that that culture. I mean, just being like introduced into a completely new culture, a new language. I guess those first few years before I learned uh, English in the United States at the taxpayers' expense. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I think that had a lot to do with the fact that I that I didn't um, interact with other kids. I mean, even. But you know, you you bring up a point that I actually haven't given too much thought to. I don't know why I didn't interact with more. Latinos, if there were a lot of Latinos around me, um, that, that's a good point. And it's, it's not something that I've thought about very much. Would you like to hear a theory? Yeah, please, please. <laughs> do you know what the average IQ is in Mexico? Yes, I do. I think it's 85. Uh, 88, in fact. Oh, okay. Again, maybe there's some variation, but um, did, did you ever get tested? Uh, no. Uh, Do you think no, there are a lot no. of listeners to this show with an IQ of 88? Um, no, probably not. <laughs> no, I would say definitely not. Um, although, based on the typing in some of the YouTube comments, one, <laughs> one could make the case. <laughs> but uh, no, you were very smart, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, mean, you may be I, so I, smart that you wouldn't have much in common with not necessarily just Mexicans or, or Hispanics, but but people in general, like any sort of race or ethnicity and so on, you may be uh, that, that smart, right? 
I hadn't thought of it that way, no. But, you know, it's curious. Um, there's When I was in the fourth grade, I think, um, there was this uh, test um, that I took. Um, I don't, it might have been an IQ test. But anyway, after that test, I was put into a special program for, like, gifted and talented kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always, felt, I always thought that it was more of an artistic thing because, I don't know, I think that test probably picked up on, on my creativity. Um, no, I was, uh, it, yeah, I was, I was, I mean, uh, for what it's worth, I was sort of pushed ahead in a wide variety. I was so far advanced in my reading and writing in particular that I was given a curtained off area to just do whatever I wanted when I was in school in England. Um, I could just pick any book and just read and write and do whatever I wanted. There, nobody bothered to try and teach me, and nobody, um, like I was just. And was one other kid sometimes was in there with me, and um, yeah. Then when I was in Canada uh, in grade eight, I went into a grade thirteen writing class, and uh, I mean, so. Um, in, 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 this is back when they tried to accommodate smart people. I don't know if they really are doing that as much anymore, but uh, yeah, you you just maybe you know, and I'm sure are, you know, ex- extremely intelligent. And that is a challenge. It's a challenge for socializing horizontally, right? Right. Yes. Again, I had never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I'm not shocking you with the IQ stuff, right? No, you know, I've always kind of thought, not always, but recently I've kind of thought that I've probably at the like 110, 115 range. I've never taken the test though. And you don't need to, and nothing's more boring than people who talk about their IQ scores, and it doesn't hugely matter. Like, and, and this IQ stuff, I mean, there's lots of exceptions, right? I mean, um, gosh, what was it? Muhammad Ali had an IQ, I don't know, high 70s or something, but, um, you know, had a willpower and a charisma and so on that made him uh, able to achieve some pretty fantastic stuff. And I, I, Einstein's IQ was not super high. And when it comes to leadership, more IQ can sometimes be a deficiency, um, you get that, you know, oh, so precious autistic streak or whatever, and uh, it can be a challenge. So uh, higher IQ is interesting and cool, but uh, it's not necessarily the be all and end all. It's not so much. Um, uh, it's not so much the horsepower as the driving that I think matters. And I certainly don't try and speak only for very high IQ people. I mean, I could, but uh, I don't think that's really the, the the point of philosophy, you know, and I, get, I had these guys, this brothers on trying to talk about sort of reality and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, and it was pretty complicated and, and I kind of like that in a way, but if you, if you can't break it down to something kids can learn, you're not really doing philosophy. Um, and, and so that's why UPB practiced explaining it to my kid uh, who now regularly dings me if I'm not UB be compliant, which is good. <laughs> it helps. So yeah, I just I just sort of wanted to point this out because this is what I thought when I was sort of reading your letter and, and talking about it uh, with Mike in preparation for the show. It's kind of what I thought about you've gone back to Mexico. Now, if you were mostly around, I guess, legal or Im- illegal Hispanics, and then you went back to Me- Mexico, I... I that would be a challenge enough if you were around other kids that were smarter, whether they were Hispanic or not, and then you went back to Mexico. Again, I don't, I don't know, but, but what has it been like for you at the age of 21 deciding to go back? Um, yeah, well, I'm 31 now, so that was 10 years ago. Um, and, well, it's been really tough. I mean, I've, I've really only realized this uh recently like within the past year or two 
Um, so now I'm taking therapy, which I'm, and I'm actually taking therapy with a Jungian uh, therapist, thanks to, uh, oh. you know, because I heard that you, you had. Uh, so that's working out really well. Um, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, it surprises me to this day that at the age of 21, um, you know, I had this sort of uh, moral sense to, to realize that, you know, I just didn't want I uh, didn't want to be there. I, I didn't want to be in that situation. Now, that's, that's an be- intelligence test right there, right? Because you, if I understand this right, and correct me where I go astray, again, I don't want to explain to you your own life, but look, looking down the road and saying, okay, this could be my next 60 years is being illegal or, you know, praying for some sort of path to citizenship or something. So you looking over the hill, in a sense, and looking and, and trying to figure out the consequences and making a big life change for something that was more in line with legality, something more in, in line with legitimacy, something like that, that to me is an intelligence test right there that, that puts you in, in a very high bracket. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. You know, and when I first realized that uh, how, how tough it was going to be for me to, to work in the U.S. and to try, to try and do any of the things that I really wanted to do, you know, I think I must have been like 15 or 16, and that, uh, that drove me to a depression that lasted for, you know, I mean, it, I, I'm still uh, suffering from that depression, I think. Um, it, was, it was awful. Um, so Because, yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to just be, a, I don't know. This is a cliche, and I apologize for the stereotype, but, you know, if you're just going to be a maid or a gardener for the rest of your life, it's not like it's disastrous to not be a citizen, so to speak. But, you know, if you want to start really exercising your intelligence, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a professional, you want to be a business owner and so on, boom, right, you're, you're hitting a pretty significant barrier. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So at the age of 20, 21, I mean, I maybe like five years after um, I realized this, yeah, I just came to the conclusion that I had to leave. Um, and, you know, this was against the wishes of my family, particularly my mother. You know, I remember like other family members, you know, just asking me like what I was thinking <laughs> when I uh, was considering moving back to the third world, as they called it themselves, wow. you know, uh, and I was like, well, I, I, I want to be free, you know, I want to be able to work uh, and whatever I want without feeling that, you know, without this illegality, you know, without... Uh, and do your parents uh, work? Are they on welfare? I mean, what? how do they survive in this? Because, you know, and I got to tell you, I mean, for me, <laughs> let, let's make it about me, right? But, and the, the reason I'm saying this is that when I first heard about uh, uh, immigration, uh, illegal immigration, or this squatting or whatever you want to call it, this invasion, then... I, th- you know, living in the shadows, and so I, could th- I thought, you know, you had to kind of live under a bridge, and, and you couldn't go to a hospital, and you couldn't go to school, and you couldn't, like, you, no way could you ever get welfare, and, like, that would be insane, because you're illegal, right, because I had this, I don't know, British waspy relationship to legal and illegal and so on, right? So for me, like, being a, a legal squatter in a country and being able to go to school is, like, well, drugs are illegal, but you can open a heroin store, and, <laughs> which is it? Like, what, what's the plan here? And so that is something that I learned over time that, uh, and this is even before the sanctuary cities and so on. Like I remember when I first learned that illegal immigrants very often can just get welfare and they actually have a right to do so. I'm just like, what? <laughs> why is there a law? Why, why create this? Like, I don't understand. Why create this ghetto? And so on. So, um, yeah, so that's why I would ask, I mean, how did your parents um, put a roof over their heads and yours? Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's definitely one of the things that I wanted to shed some light on. I mean, um, 
it, I suppose it depends on what part of the U.S. Um, but where I was, uh, there was definitely a lot of uh, a lot of illegal immigrants and a lot of Latinos, and uh, you know, it was not very hard at all. I mean, um, at all, honestly, uh, you know, nobody asked. Uh, nobody really made a. a, a I mean, I, I again, I didn't realize this till I was quite um, you know like 15 or 16. So. It's definitely not a problem, and I mean, you can definitely work, and and certainly, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know what percentage of the kids in my school were illegal, but it must have been a pretty, you know, pretty big chunk of the, uh, the school population, um, which is which is really awful. Um, well, because you know, it's not like, I mean, if your parents are illegal, I assume they're not paying a lot of property taxes or anything, so that cost just gets passed along to the uh, to taxpayer. Yeah, that's that's awful, and I, I really hope that I can do something to repay the taxpayer someday. It's uh, well, again, not your fault. Yeah. You were a kid, right? Right. You're not morally right. responsible for for that particular choice. What are you going to hitchhike back when you're eight? I mean, you know <laughs> that that I have no no moral qualms with you whatsoever. Your parents another matter, but you know, right? Just to get to the specifics of, of your question, um, well, yeah, my mother worked uh, mostly doing cleaning. You know, like cleaning. Um, whether it be uh, like restaurants or bars or uh, you know other people's homes, uh, that's the way we we uh, well she uh, she she got us through. Um, and she, you know, my my father wasn't actually there. My father uh, he um, he lived in in the U.S. for some time. I mean, my my, my parents uh, were separated when I was six, so my my mother basically left my father when I was six and moved to oh, the so, U.S. With okay, so she she was in Mexico. She left Mexico with you. So not only were there squatting. Uh, but there's also single mom squatting too. Oh yeah, Excellent. yeah, definitely. Excellent. So I'm a, I do con- I, I connected uh, quite quite a bit with your last caller uh, in I hope terms not of too that. Much. Oh no, I mean just the uh, the contents of the call. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, yeah. So yeah, my father wasn't there. He was there for a couple of years, and he was deported, and I couldn't see him. But um, wait, so you your, know, your father did come over for a couple of years? Yeah, he was he was in the U.S. for f- for a few years, right. um, and then. And then his his visa was revoked, and he he wasn't able to go back. Um, right. So pre, pre yeah, Obama, I mean, pre Obama, I guess. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, it's not it's not difficult. It's not difficult to live over there as a US, as, as an illegal, or it didn't used to be. Hopefully, it will be now with uh, with Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean that. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about this and. Actually, actually, I was just reading recently about um, a lot of uh, Central Americans being deported, along with Mexicans, to uh, to 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 this side of the border, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you know, I just I felt so uh, so so saddened, you know, hearing about people who probably spent maybe not the Central Americans, but but maybe some some of the uh, Mexican um, immigrants who were there. Um, you know, they may have spent most of their lives there. They may not speak any Spanish. They they may, you know, um, I mean, this may be a completely new culture to them, as it was to me. Um, and it's, you know, when I think of, like, who's to blame, is it the people, I mean, is it the people that are trying to get them out? Well, no. I mean, it's obviously the people who let them in in the first place. Um, no, no, it's the people who moved illegally in the first place. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to pick on your parents, but okay. it's it's not the people who refuse to get them out. I mean, that's bad, obviously, in my opinion. Right? Uh-huh. I have a law. I don't have a law. But having a law and not enforcing it degrades the entire culture. Uh, but um, no, I mean, you, your your mom said, I'm going to the States. 
She knew it was illegal. She knew it was a criminal action. She knew that she was going to be preying upon the taxpayers, uh, and she just went ahead and did it anyway. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, uh, there. But now, I think don't, get, get, don't get me wrong. I would have much less problem, much less problem with illegal immigration if there was no welfare state, if there was complete freedom of association and all that kind of stuff, if there were no government schools. like all, If it was pay your own way, I really, really would have a tough time getting bothered by the whole thing. But given that there is a welfare state and government education and all that kind of stuff, sorry, you know, domestic population has a right to have the money to raise their own kids rather than shoveling it you know, by the barrel full to, to other cultures, other people, other races, other whoever. It doesn't really matter. It could be the same damn race. It doesn't matter to me. But, you know, people who are in a country whose ancestors built that country, who are paying taxes in that country, do have the right to keep some of that money for themselves so they can have their own kids, maintain their own culture, their own country. Uh, and um, I hope people can at least understand that it, my objection fundamentally is with government intervention domestically that then causes problems with immigration. I just wanted to mention that because it get people get, get this sort of stuff out of the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I totally agree. Um, I think what I meant was more just not not so much um, not getting them out, but letting them in in the first place, like, you know, with the lax borders and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, they just made it so easy for people to, or they make it so easy for people to, you know, for, for all the reasons you've stated before. Um, and obviously, yes, my mother's to blame. Um, I mean, I, 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 I see that for sure. But uh, you know, I still if feel somebody like- if somebody leaves a, a wallet on a bench, you still don't justify the thief. Well, it was so easy, you know. <laughs> it's still a thief, right? Right now, I don't know what you would think. Uh, how would you would factor the uh, the, the IQ uh, into that? Um, I mean, maybe uh, you know, if there's a park with if she's, uh, if she's smart enough, if she's smart enough to cross over and make a go of it, then she's smart enough to understand the ethics of the situation. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, it's it's not called uh, illegal for. <laughs> I mean, it's called illegal for a reason, right? Oh yeah, no, I mean, you know, try try being an American and don't pay your taxes and see whether you get a sanctuary city or not. Probably not. And I, let me just make a quick rant here too. I'm going to try not to wedge okay. it in, and we'll have time to talk afterwards. But uh huh. If everyone who wants a better and freer life leaves Mexico and comes to America, Mexico will never be free. Mexico will never improve. I mean, there may be limits based on national IQ and all that kind of stuff, but dear God alive, there are very smart, very brilliant people in Mexico who could be fighting the good fight and trying to make Mexico a better place and writing their articles and educating people about freedom and liberty and personal responsibility and property rights and free markets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I know I went down to give a speech in Brazil. There was a great group of guys down there doing wonderful work educating people about the free market. So there could be all of this wonderful stuff happening in Mexico, but because everybody just goes to America who wants to be free, what happens? Well, the countries that they're leaving never get free, which means that more people go to America, which means there are fewer freedom-loving people or people who want a better life in the host country. Which means more people, you understand, this cycle can't end except when the last productive person leaves, I don't know, say, Venezuela. And then everyone starves to death together. I mean, I understand it. you got to stay and fight. That's a challenging thing. And, you know, I, I can understand why people want to do that. Well, I just want a better life for me and my kids and so on. It's like, yeah, but if everybody makes that decision, then you actually don't get that better life for your kids. 
Because what happens is rather than stay and fight for freedom in your own country, everybody swarms to America, overburdens the welfare system, collapses government finances, and then guess what? You left Mexico because it was kind of a crap hole, and you just turned America into a crap hole, except now there ain't no place to go. All right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, I agree with that completely. And that's a big part of my, uh, of, of my question, of my concern. Um, and the things that have been going through my mind lately are just so strange <laughs> because I, uh, you know, in a way I kind of identified or, or started to identify as an American in, in the United States. And, you know, then I'm brought over here and, you know, I went through a very difficult period in which, you know, I didn't really want to accept the fact that I was in Mexico and that I was, you know, that I was stuck here, that, that I was, that, and that I was born here and that I belonged here in a way. Um, but, you know, I've been listening to all of this, especially with Donald Trump, for example. I, uh, you know, I followed his, um, his campaign and his eventually, eventual victory, and I was very excited about that. And uh, I've been following some of the meme stuff, and I just think it's hilarious. And it's, uh, and it's very fun, you know. It's exciting. Um, it's exciting to, to see that kind of uh, um, excitement, you know, in that community um, uh, for, for, their, for their new leader, right, and, and the possibilities of that. So, um, but then I asked myself, you know, um, I don't have any place in, in that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an American. Um, so it, it kind of put me at, in, in an odd uh, place where I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, yeah, nationalism sounds like it can have some very positive effects and it can be a very positive thing. Um, and now it's, it's my turn to, to accept in a way that um, I am Mexican and that perhaps, you know, the best thing that I can do is, is accept that I'm Mexican and try to work towards the betterment of my own country um, and not worry about you know, as fun as whatever's happening in the U.S. maybe. Well, here's, yeah, um, here's the thing. I think immigration is a challenge. Because of human biodiversity, uh, immigration is a challenge. Because of cultural incompatibilities, immigration is a challenge. And I've gone back and forth on this so many times, so I'm not going to bore you with all the back and forth. But the one thing, the one thing that is required for immigration to succeed is for a self-confident host culture, then immigration can succeed. If America had a self-confident host culture, and it doesn't because it's been eaten from the root up by leftists and globalists and communists and socialists to be, you know, racist and sexist and homophobic and killed all the Indians and, you know, like it, the, 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 the host culture has been crippled and turned into a sort of self-loathing caricature of its former confidence and this is true all throughout the West, you cannot have successful immigration into a self-loathing host culture. Because there's nothing to assimilate to, you understand? It all just balkanizes. Everything just fragments. There's no dominant culture belief system, ideology, philosophy, whatever you want to call it. There's no dominant mind system that allows people to integrate into a cohesive whole society. Now, in the 19th century, America had enormous amounts of self-confidence, as did uh, England, and there was immigration and emigration and so on. And you were damn well expected to conform and comply. And of course, in a sense, you had to because there was no welfare state. So you had to integrate economically or you just couldn't survive. And as I've mentioned before, a third of people from Europe who moved to America in the 19th century ended up moving back because they didn't like it. 
So if you have, like Japan has a self-confident host culture. You go to Japan, you try and lecturing them about their racism, they'll just laugh and kick you on the next boat out. If you have a self-confident host culture, then you can have immigration. Like, it's sort of like if you, you can have a healthy relationship with someone if you have a positive self-image and you're self-confident and expressive and, and honest. And like then you, but if you're some sort of self-loathing, codependent, narcissistic, you know, whatever, masochistic, then you can't have a healthy relationship. If you yourself are not healthy, you can't have a healthy relationship. And if the host culture is sick and is self-loathing and has been turned against itself then it cannot have a healthy relationship with its immigrants. The immigrants will look at it with contempt, will not want to join a self-loathing culture. Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying to Hispanics, well, you've got to come and be like Americans. What? Divided about race, self-hating, self-loathing, you know, at war with yourself. Like, I don't want any of that. And so... And this, of course, is the point. If you cripple the host culture and invite a lot of other cultures in, you shatter the cohesiveness of the country, you get multiculturalism, which is where there's no dominant culture, everything breaks up, fragments, becomes tribal, sets against each other. And this particularly happens along IQ lines, along racial lines, along ethnicity lines, along cultural lines. So if you don't have a healthy, cohesive, self-respecting host culture, it doesn't mean it can't be improved or anything like that, then you're like um, a crazy codependent trying to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You, you may end up in a relationship, but it sure as hell won't be healthy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Say, so why doesn't immigration work in the 19th century? Yep, no welfare state and a very confident host culture that expected assimilation and did not enforce it, but expected it. And um, there was a certain amount of ostracism of people who wouldn't integrate. And that's not the case anymore. The welfare state means you don't have to integrate. And a self-contempting, self-hating host culture means that nobody wants to join that team anyway, right? So, right. and this, yeah, this issue around... I, so I, I had a, a friend years ago who would tell me about the challenges of being an immigrant, not really noticing that I myself was an immigrant or was brought over as an immigrant family in an immigrant family. But, um, and she said there's this like in-betweenness, there's this lostness. You're not part of the culture you've come to. You're not part of the culture you left. And something I've noticed is this, the bubble, the bubble, the immigrant bubble. And what happens, of course, is let's say that uh, your parents left Pakistan, you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, right? Well, they took a little bubble of Pakistan over with them to wherever they are now, let's just say England, right? So for 30, 40 years ago, they left Pakistan and brought the little bubble of Pakistan from 40 years ago to England. Could, could happen the other way. I mean, just go this way. Now, what happens is Pakistan changes and grows, but the little bubble you bring over doesn't. Because it's not subject to the same forces. It's not subject to the same economic decisions, the same political decisions, the same demographic pressures, or anything like that. And so you bring a bubble of frozen culture over with you, and it never thaws. And your kids are growing up in a little bu bubble of Pakistan from 40 years ago. Now, maybe this was the case with you and, and, and your parents, Sebastian, but... 
you grow up in a little bubble that has detached itself from the mothership of Pakistan. And now there's no place to go because that bubble shrinks and pops. But that's what you were raised in. It's this little time capsule of Pakistan from 40 years ago. You go back to Pakistan now, it's nothing like the Pakistan bubble that you grew up in 40 years ago. And of course, your host country is not that way. So you have this in-betweenness, this rootedlessness. Rootlessness? <laughs> this root rootlessness. And I don't know any way to land into a place that feels like home. When the home that you have was detached, frozen, vanished. And there's no place to land where you are. You can't go home. Home isn't where you are. So where are you? Yeah, uh, you touch on something very... Um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really tough. Uh, definitely, it's, uh, it's very hard. Um, and it's one of the, the issues that I've been uh, dealing with. Um, I actually moved uh, about a year ago when I decided to make all of these changes to a, a community in Mexico with a pretty large expat community, uh, um, population, sorry. Um, Wait, and now I think expat just... is becoming confusing for me at the moment. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you mean by expat with your circumstances? Well, yeah, there's a large community where I live now um, of Americans and Canadians and people from okay. you know all over the world. That I thought you meant people who Germany. had grown up in America but who were Hispanic who'd moved back to Mexico. That's why I just wanted to make sure I understood oh. that. Okay. No, so I think I'm kind of trying to look for that in a way, you know. Um, but I also realized that I have to, um, you know, I have to absorb my own culture and I need to try to uh, find the best within it and and try to make some changes here uh, to, to make my country better. Um, and try yeah. to- I, I think you have to, I mean, if you have philosophical values, if, if I wasn't trying to create the world that I want to live in, I wouldn't feel at home anywhere. Because, you know, I mean, everywhere I go, there's some pretty significant elements of statism and collectivism and, and you know, acceptance of spanking or, you know, some combination of those things in sort of very indifferent slider bars. And so because I don't feel at home anywhere I go, I have to create a home everywhere I go, which is on the internet. And I have to create the kind of world that I want to live in because I don't feel that my values or rational values are matched anywhere in the world at the moment. So I'm creating a little slice of the future and letting it pour in. Yes, I think my, my own life um, has basically led me to, to the same thing. Um, I mean, my, my desire uh, to, to learn more about philosophy and, uh, and ultimately d- dedicate my life uh, to it probably has a lot to do with that, with um, me, me seeking a, a home of some sort. Right. Right. And I think another challenge for immigrants um, in the West at the moment is, is the racist card is um, the great weakness of Western immigration. Again, I can't imagine going to Japan or, or the Philippines or anywhere with some other culture or race and, you know, sitting down and bitching at them about their culture and bitching at them about their treatment of, of me and crying out that they were racist and, and so on. I mean, it, it would just, to me, that's incomprehensible. And racism, so people say, well, it worked in the 19th century. It was like, yeah, well, yeah, because people in the 19th century came almost exclusively from Europe. And if you come from Europe, there may be regional conflicts, but you're all Caucasians. 
And so there's no screaming of racism at people in the 19th century. I mean, yeah, people didn't like the Irish, and there were certainly tensions with some Chinese and all that. But there wasn't the great scream of racism. And I would be much more comfortable with different races intermixing and intermingling if, and I don't know how to avoid this, but if there wasn't this constant screaming of racism. Until that is no longer a giant factor in the massive reallocation and, uh, of resources in society, I don't know how immigration of different races is going to work until the racism card stops working. And I don't know <laughs> when or how the racism card is going to stop working, given what I know about human biodiversity. I mean, it's not nearly as much fun moving to the West if you don't get a big racist card, like to be called calling people racist, calling whites racist, and so on. It's, you know, because you get a lot of resources, right? You'll get government grants, government loans, preferential entrances if you're part of certain demographic groups into universities, and, and you'll get, you know, affirmative action hiring and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, at the expense of the Native population, and this is true for uh, Native Blacks in some ways as well. So it is... Uh, it, it is a challenge, you know, until people are willing to give up the racist card. You're a racist. There's ever racism. is racist. Race, race, race. I don't know how we're supposed to have a colorblind society if everyone keeps screaming racism. Well, when I say everyone, I mean non-whites uh, mostly and, and, you know, Hispanics and, uh, and, uh, and blacks. Screaming racism all the time, it's like, okay, well, this means that it can't work. Because if everyone's screaming racism all the time at whites and now to some degree at, at East Asians... Um, Okay, well, that's why it worked in the 19th century, because it was all one race, different cultures, different countries, different languages, but one race. Well, because, and, and again, it's nothing inherent. It's just that as long as the leftists allow, allow us, or once, as long as the leftists continue to encourage us dividing ourselves and screaming racist at each other and suppressing information about human biodiversity, it's not going to work. But then the reality is multiculturalism as it stands, and diversity as it stands, is not designed to work. It's not designed to work any more than the welfare state is designed to work. It's designed to divide and to fragment and to destroy. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I actually, uh, I feel um, right now for, uh, I'm staying with a Catholic family, for example. Um, and, you know, I don't share any of their uh, customs. I don't know uh, all of these things. And, you know, I, I feel like an outsider with them, although I am Mexican. Uh, so, um, I mean, I, I definitely understand how... But uh, are you Mexican? I mean, that's an interesting question. You left when you were six. <laughs> are you Mexican? And, and Mexican, of course, you can't... I guess you could adopt, right? Mestizo is one thing. Mexican is another. Catholic is another. Right? Anyone can become Catholic if they're willing to go through the process. Uh, it's pretty tough to become a Mexican, and you can transition into Hispanic or a mestizo, right? I mean, you, you, you just can't, I mean, no matter what people say about social constructs and all that kind of stuff, biologically you can't, right? And so, yeah, these are all very, very challenging. And so my suggestion, and I know you haven't asked Rennie, other than, I guess, obliquely in your, your email, but my suggestion is, you don't get culture, I'm afraid. You don't, you don't get it. And, and that's a shame in some ways, and it's a great gift in another. And if it's any consolation, I don't get culture either. And what I mean is, I don't, I don't mean I don't understand it. I mean, it's just not a, it's not, not a present that I get. It's not an identity that I get. I can't be a whatever it is, right? A Canadian, a, a, you know, I, I, I can't, I just, 
Legally, I am. And there's lots of things I like about uh, Canada. And it's a pretty great place to live compared to most of the world. So, you know, all of that having been said. But when you're a philosopher, you don't get culture. That's just not a gift that you get. Doesn't mean you can't admire it, uh, which I do. It doesn't, in some ways, doesn't mean you can't uh, improve it. It doesn't mean you can't attempt to bring culture closer to reason and evidence. But sorry, it's just not something you get when you think for yourself. Because culture is a way of offloading reasoning into history. It's, it's a way of offloading habit and decisions into history and tradition and momentum. Which is fine. Again, I used to have more problems with it uh, until I saw the alternatives, which was nihilism. You know, most people, when they detach from culture, they don't become philosophical. They become hedonistic, nihilistic, materialistic, empty, and uh, cowardly and um, cucky. So... What I would say is if you're going to do the reason and evidence thing, and it kind of sounds like you are, then you just have to commit to that. Philosophy has to become your country. Philosophy has to become your culture. And that means you'll always have a home wherever you go. But that home won't be prefabricated for you. You'll have no house to move into. You must build your own, and you must build it enough for lots of people to live there. Hopefully, eventually, at some point, the whole damn world. But you have to be an explorer. You cannot be a settler. You have to be a builder. You cannot be a move-intoer, right? Um, and, and through the inspiration and act of building and of exploring and of creating, you can transfer the methodology of philosophy to other people through inspiration and example and teaching. And then we can begin to spread this new country called reason, this new culture called philosophy. But we cannot live in the houses of our fathers, when we've been kicked out of history by philosophy, we must build a new world. We must explore the new planet of reason and evidence and invite others to come and live with us because we don't breathe that air anymore. We're high up on the mountains. We don't breathe the sea air anymore. It's too thick for us. It makes us cough. We must invite people up to the rarefied air and the glorious views of the snowy-capped mountains of far vision, of deep thinking, of universalism. We can't live where they are. We can invite them up to where we are. And that way, we get thin air, a great view, and very, very invigorating weather. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. Um, thank you for that. That's, uh, that's beautiful. I, um, um, I, I wanted to mention that I, uh, I recently listened to, um, I, I guess I first listened to it about a year ago, uh, a call you had with um, a woman and I, I just listened to that call again a couple of days ago, and it's uh, it's great. It's it's, uh, it's one of my favorite calls I think you've had with her. I mean, with 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 any caller. Um, and basically, I, I remember that, or, or just to remind you, um, she she was um, she felt like she um, you know she wasn't so interested in her career path anymore. Um, and and then you went into how. Uh, there, there's a point in, in the lives of, uh, of, of certain people, um, maybe I'm one of them, or I think I am one of them, rather, um, where you just don't feel like there's any interest that fills you anymore, you know, that just feels selfish. Um, and so what you basically said to her was that it, it wasn't so much about what she wanted anymore, but what the world wanted of her. Um, and that just, um, oh, that was just so so such a strong emotion that uh, came up in me when, when I when I first heard that because I, I identified it uh, immediately. You know, I just felt like 
yeah, uh, none of these things that uh, that I'm supposedly interested in and that supposedly uh, I want to uh, give my life to really uh, really uh, have my interest anymore. Uh, they, they can't hold my interest anymore. I, I don't care that much about those things anymore. But it's so difficult to make that step uh, towards. And I actually was, was talking about this with my therapist uh, yesterday. Um, you know how difficult it is to just let go of your ego. Just let go of your ego to dedicate your life to something bigger. You know, to something um, grander, to something more important. Um, but I'm still going through that process. You know, of, of shedding that uh, that skin or, or letting go of my my ego, uh, whatever you want to call that. Um, and I think this phone call. Uh, it's it's just amazing. I, I'm going to listen to this uh, several times, probably um, uh, later. And it's it. Uh, I'm very very grateful for for your time. I'm I'm very oh, happy. You're, I had you're a very welcome. To- and I, I know what you mean about the surrendering of the uh, of the ego. Um, ah, it's tough. <laughs> it, it is very tough. And I'll, you know, there's a, it's, a, it's an old song by now, I guess. Uh, and it's way too high for me to sing because the guy's almost a countertenor. Um. But there's a great uh, line, and I, I hope I hope that you are having the time of your life. But think twice. That's my only advice. Come on now. Who do you? Who do you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> Bless your soul. You really think you're in control? Well, I think you're crazy. And it's really uh, it's a powerful lyric for me. Maybe just because it was at a time when I was in sort of a whirlwind of battle between the ego and the necessity of the world. Because there's what I want, there's what philosophy requires, and there's what the world needs. And these things are not always in perfect alignment. (laughs) In fact, they seem like a pretty random solar system at times. There's what I want, there's what philosophy requires, and there's what the world needs. Now, what I want, if what I want is what philosophy requires, fantastic. Now, certainly, philosophy is needed by the world, right? So what the world needs and what philosophy requires should more or less be in sync, but it's a very delicate operation because you, you don't get to operate in somebody who's anesthetized as, as a philosopher. And we, we've seen this in some of the calls tonight. You have to operate on people who are awake and often fighting and, and think that you're doing stabbing them or something, to to analogize it that way. So what the world needs has to be perceived by the world as well as by objective, rational requirements as well. So people think that they need their history. They think they need their delusions. They think they need their cultures. They think they need their superstitions. They think they need their history. They think they need their justifications and their defenses and their ego strengths. And they think they need their... Toxic companions at times, or their toxic relationships, they need them. So what the world needs subjectively versus what it needs objectively is sometimes complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. And navigating that, philosophy requires that we tell the truth, but the truth is perceived as toxicity by many people in the world. So that is a very, very delicate Operation. Now, what I want is for the world to need what philosophy actually requires. That's what I want. I want for the world to say, God, give me the truth. Just give me the truth. Give it to me straight. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Give it to me straight. I can take it. That's what I want the world to need. But that's not what the world thinks it needs. 
or believes it needs or experiences that it needs. I want the world to need philosophy so that I can deliver and other people can deliver. And the world says, that was tough, but hey, thanks, man. I needed that. Oh, you woke me up. My cheek's smarting, but thank you. But that's not the way it works. Philosophy's requirements are also complicated because the world is ambivalent about what it needs. And philosophy is even ambivalent about what it requires. Because philosophy requires reason and evidence, but philosophy also requires that it spread in the minds of the people. Being the solitary philosopher is not being a philosopher at all. It's like calling yourself a singer when no one ever hears you sing. Does it matter? Who cares? Philosophy requires reason and evidence. But the degree to which philosophy embodies reason and evidence is the degree to which it provokes hostility in the minds of the masses. So philosophy needs to spread. It needs reason and evidence, but reason and evidence puts it on a direct collision course with the irrationalities of the masses. So even philosophy's requirements are contradictory in that in its most distilled, essential, and truthful form, it provokes the most hostile reactions from many people in the world. Riddle me this, Batman. I love I love these kinds of challenges. I also hate these kinds of, kinds of... Even I'm ambivalent about the whole damn unholy trinity of incompatibility and absolute requirements for survival represented by these three poles. What I want, what the world needs, what philosophy requires. The world needs diplomacy. The world needs to be pacified. The world needs to be praised, even when it's not directly praiseworthy, because it opens up the possibility of a conversation. There's an incredibly complex dance. You know, people think, hey, I'm just going to turn on the camera and I'm going to just speak my mind. (laughs) Oh, no, I've tried that. (laughs) Oh, I've tried that. Uh, Let's just say there can be some challenges. No matter how good your argument is, there can be just a little bit of challenges here and there when it comes to that approach. So, uh, yeah, that is is the dance. That is the complexity. That is the... uh, Seduction of a well-armed, highly prickly and volatile victim, (laughs) so to speak, that I try to bring by orienting the great machinery of philosophy at the uh, jumpy biochemistry of the planet's defenses. It is uh, a massive challenge. And if if I I think I do have some capacity to navigate those challenges and to satisfy all of these massively contradictory but absolute requirements to find a way to satisfy the requirements of philosophy to provide to the world what the world actually needs rather than what it thinks it needs, which is the opposite in many ways. I have a way to satisfy the requirements of philosophy both for integrity and for spreading. I have a way to satisfy the genuine needs of the world rather than its illusory needs which gives me the satisfaction of acting with integrity to bring reason to an anti-rational world. And this is part of the book that I think I'm finishing up soon. Third draft is done. The Art of the Argument. It's a way of bringing this across. And the humor as well. Spoonsful of sugar makes the medicine go down. How do you make people (laughs) laugh without... um, How do you make people laugh in a way that opens them up to receptivity of philosophy without having them think that philosophy is not 
pretty goddamn serious. All of these are very, very delicate balance. If I have any capacity to navigate this, I have, to me, an absolute obligation to do so. If you have healing hands, do not withhold your hugs from lepers. That is the obligation of great ability. So I hope this gives some sense uh, that you're not alone in these challenges. Uh, I hope that, you know, I'm blowing wide the kimono so people can see the machinery underneath the um, the freckles. Um, I hope is helpful for you as well because you're not alone in this, Sebastian. We're all trying to satisfy these three poles and others. And there's no easy way to do it. And the moment you think it's gotten easier is the moment you'll probably be at the most risk. Yes. Um, well, I hope it doesn't take me too long to join you in the good fight. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you're in already if you're thinking about these things. And um, let me know how it goes. You know, feel free to call back in. I, I really, really appreciate the call. And I can't tell you how much I respect the choices that you're making. Uh, returning to the mothership to make it saner is something that is a very courageous and noble thing to do, in my humble opinion. So I hope that you will take at least my high regard with you as a potential uh, upside to some of the challenges that you're taking on and uh, massive uh, props and respect to you, Sebastian, for what you're, you're undertaking. Oh, certainly. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I would... Uh I would invite other people, um, you know, across the globe to uh, to think about this. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I think the long the long term consequences of uh, this sort of uh, brain drain, right, from uh, from these countries to uh, the U.S. and, and other European countries. Uh, you know, in the long run, what does that mean uh, for 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 the globe as a whole, for for the world as a whole? It's uh, you know, it's a scary thing to think about. Yeah. I think so. Well, thank you uh, very much. Uh, for everyone who called in tonight, it was a very great pleasure to chat with you all. And please don't forget, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. This is uh, it. This is it, man. This is the big time. This is the big push. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter for now, at Stephen Molyneux.